my fellow Estorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valerie Redis. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Each episode of Valar Reredis for the Winds of Winter will feature a guest or guests. We'll take a closer look at each chapter, going through them one by one instead of in batches. Hey, that's not true today. We're doing two. But they're not full chapters, so <laughs> it's still pretty much true. The spirit of the concept is maintained. A standard warning must apply as well. These chapters are subject to change by the time we see them. Although, honestly, I don't know if that warning really needs to apply for this one because we haven't actually seen them. (laughs) We just have some information on them. Uh, We don't actually have chapters so much as we have information about chapters. And we have questions. We have a, a bit of a backlog from past episodes you know, we uh, once we move on to the next chapter, we're not talking about Mercy when we're talking about Ariane. So we don't talk, we don't answer questions about Mercy when uh, during an Ariane episode, for example. But we do have a few uh, questions from past episodes that we've pulled together, as well as a few other fun topics. We're going to cover the Riverlands prologue. We're going to cover Riverlands slash Westerlands, given we don't know exactly. We'll we have to leave that kind of wide open. The Asha fragment. We're going to talk about a few themes and miscellaneous topics and we're going to talk we're going to go deeper into the concept of the stark convergence the the stark air situation it's like the game of winterfell's throne in a sense and uh we've talked about it a bit we talked about it at the end of uh dance of dragons in our coverage there but there's a lot more we could say on it and more has been revealed on it given uh the fact that mercy and elaine and the theon chapter as well as bran just you know kind of popping up in places and to help us discuss these excellent, fun chapters and tidbits, we have our recurring contributor on <laughs> camera with us live today. Nina, how's it going? It is It is going great. I, it's finally back after, I, I think I haven't actually been on myself, like just myself, for like two years. So this is very exciting. It has been a while, you know, right. We, we usually have you on, our pattern has been to have you on for the wrap-ups, but uh, of course, there's less to wrap up this time. And we had <laughs> Joe Buckley and Lady Gwen, our other usual compatriot. We had them on for uh, individual chapters. So it just kind of made sense to to run it out like this. And here we are. Um, and make sure everyone... <laughs> here we are indeed. Yeah. And make sure everyone to check out Good Queen Alley with one L.tumblr.com. That is Nina's blog. And there are so many great takes over there. You've got just a wide variety of of topics. It's not like we can say, oh, she focuses on this or that or that. You got so much you talk about over there and um, a lot of succession stuff. You're really good at handling stuff like that. You got a lot of good theories. You're really good at thinking through 
uh, the plot lines, which is really helpful today when we don't have as much solid information to work with. So looking forward to... Oh, you're going to make me blush. Well, let's see if we can do some more of that. We'll get into the information. (laughs) As usual, everybody, you can send us questions. You can send them ahead of time on one of our many social media outlets like Flick or Facebook or Slack or Discord or Twitter or Patreon. You can also send us questions live here on YouTube. Ashea will grab them and we'll handle them at the end unless they are particularly pertinent to the current topic, in which case we may jump ahead and ask, uh, take, on, take on the question right in the moment. Now, usually we start with a meta history, meaning the history of this particular chapter, but we don't have a chapter, so we're doing a meta calculation. A, a lot of people are concerned with how much of the Winds of Winter has come out. And, you know, like, our, how, is, is so much of the book's already spoiled and all this. And I wanted to kind of get to a more granular level because I don't really think that's true, but I don't, you know, that's a matter of opinion. So I thought we'd try to back my opinion up. And, you know, I'm not the only one who has this opinion. With some data, right? We can do... We, we, we got pretty deep into at the end of every Valor Redis episode with timestamps and counting, doing the math and the percentages. And, well, let's build on that. So, Nina, you had a kind of a similar take. Like, my first guess was roughly 12%. Before I did the math, I said 12% was my guess. And part of that was based on the fact that a lot of these chapters are kind of on the shorter end. And none of them are long. Mm-hmm. We don't have a single like long spoiler chapter. There's chapters like in Clash of Kings, there's a chapter that's 71 minutes long. And there's a chapter mm-hmm. in Feast for Crows that's like 60 minutes long. And there's several like, and there isn't even one here. The longest one here is like about 40. And there's only one of them is that long. So is that, is that how you feel about it roughly too? It, it is. It is. And I know this is something that I think even George R. Martin has spoken about this. I think it was with respect to Sons of the Dragon where he had read it and then it was released and people said, well, you already read it. So it's not that special. Um, but I think with here, we're not we're actually getting that much of the winds of winter. I would say, I mean, I'm you're obviously more of a numbers person than I am when it comes to this. But I think, yeah, that's probably about right. We probably have maybe 10 to 12% of the book at this point. And what we have is stuff we were already supposed to know going into the winds of winter. It's not that this was delayed intentionally to the winds of winter. He would have fit this all in if the book had physically been able to bind it. Yeah. So <laughs> we're, this is really more of a bridge between A Dance with Dragon and The Winds of Winter of the things we're already supposed to know going in as opposed to kind of spoiling the, the book. Yeah, that's a great point because it's true that that almost all of these chapters were planned for A Dance with Dragons. He wrote them with that the themes of that book in mind. They were meant to be part of the, the climax. Like The Forsaken is a setup for what's coming in the next book. In, but instead, it's setting up what's coming in that book. So you're right. It's it's set up. It's a lot. Of, it's like appetizers. Here's a here's one thing I did. Okay, so I took the word count of Mercy and I took the word count of a few other chapters and compared them to the word count of other chapters in uh, published chapters. Like for example, the Mercy chapter is about forty words different than Brand Three. So that's really close, right? Forty words. <laughs> that's like thirty <laughs> seconds. So uh, if that, right? So that's a 41 minute chapter and our mercy audio production is about 38 30 38 and a half minutes so somewhere in there is the average right roy dotrice maybe reads a little slower than our audio production what whatever uh, some words are longer than others you know that kind of thing so we'll, we'll call it roughly 40 minutes for 6000 words 
Well, we have 280 minutes. Based on that math, we have 280 minutes of, of the wins of winner. Based on word counts for all those chapters. 280 minutes. You know how, if you all remember how long A Dance with Dragons was, it was 2,900 minutes. <laughs> so that's not even 10% of that book if we're, if it's the same length, which it, you know, won't be the exact same length, but it's going to be big. It's going to be a huge book. It might be the longest yet. If not, it'll be close, most likely. And if we're looking at what happened in a Game of Thrones, let's say, what, what happened in the first 280 minutes of book one? The Starks hadn't even left Winterfell yet, y'all. That's <laughs> like, Bran has been thrown. Like, he did catch Cersei and Jaime in the act. That's happened. Danny's just been married. That's it. Like, she just had her wedding. John has departed for the wall. I mean, not, those are important chapters for sure. Like, the others showed up and all that. But, like, it's definitely not the meat of the story. Like, Arya's still like, uh-oh. They're going to be mad at me for not sewing properly. Like, <laughs> consider where she's at now. So I, I went back to, because, um, yeah, sometimes I do do research for these. <laughs> sometimes. To, um, uh, Dance with Dragons. And I went to, so the end of the second Valerie Rivas episode for Dance with Dragons, oh. I think was 292 minutes even through the book. Oh. Something like that. Yes. Or maybe it was 290. I don't remember. Something like that. So, you know, roughly about 280 minutes, you know, give give or take. And that ends with The Merchant's Man, which is not that far into the book. Very little had happened. I think there had been one John chapter, I think one or two Daenerys chapters, you know, where Tyrion hadn't yet met Aegon. This is yeah. this is still very early yeah. into the book. So I'm not worried about, you know, any kind of, oh, we've already known all the big things that are going to happen. Yeah. I don't think we're even close I don't to either. knowing. Yeah, that. it's just that we've figured out a lot, but there's just paired up with how much there is. Like, yeah, maybe we've scratched yeah. 5%. 5%'s a lot because it's a book, a massive book. But in terms of how much there is, it's not that much. So yeah, it's just a good thing to keep in perspective, everybody. If you feel like, you know, a lot has already come out. I would, you know, I think this this makes the case that not really. <laughs> and if we were to look at uh, another way to look at it is look at locations. We've seen the Crofters Village, the Bravos, Gates of the Moon, Storm's End, somewhere, you know, the Red Wine Straits, roughly, wherever exactly that is, if that's House Pharaoh or the Isle of Pigs, whatever, something that was. Um, the location itself isn't super important because they're leaving. But we haven't seen... <laughs> The Dothraki Sea, we haven't seen Marine. Uh, well, we haven't seen Marine, really, but uh, I meant to say we haven't seen Old Town. We haven't seen High Hermitage. Or we haven't seen inside dorm. Marine. We've been kind of outside Marine. Good point, right, yeah. Like, because Barristan charges, like, right there. And, yeah, we only see, like, right at the gates. <laughs> and then um, we haven't seen Penny Tree, where Brienne and, and, and Jamie are. We haven't seen Skagos or the way to Skagos. The Wall, we haven't been back there. But we also have something kind of interesting, which is different, which is that Bran is sort of breaking the rules now. We've talked about how Bran is sort of in these other POVs, even though he's not there. And that's that's a new kind of concept for us to consider, isn't it? It, it is. It is. It's it kind of opens up the, the possibilities now, because now when you have the magical ability to see anywhere, well, you have the magical ability to see anywhere. So you're not limited to, oh, I can only go to places where there are the 20 remaining POV characters who are physically present. I can see anywhere at any point. So now George R. Martin has 
basically the whole map to play with and say, if I want to set something here, I can. And the excuse can be, well, Bran can see it because he's magic. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it doesn't seem strange because it's been set up really well. I mean, he can be in whether he's looking through the eyes of a raven or I don't know the mechanism, you know, just looking somehow. <laughs> it does, it's not super important to, to get down to that level of detail. The fact is he can do it or is going to be able to do it, is gaining the ability to do it, however you want to phrase it. And that's interesting because we have the characters are shrinking down to a smaller group of locations, not a small group of locations, but more POVs are coming together than we've seen before besides at the beginning. And we don't have a POV currently at places like Winterfell, Sunspear, Harrenhal, Dragonstone, some of the most traveled locations, places we've had a lot of chapters. So what that says to us is we don't actually have to have a POV at these places if we want to potentially, if George wants to show us something, you're right, he can just go. For example, the uh, Tower Joy flashback on the TV show. I don't know if we're going to get that, but it's a distinct possibility and it's a perfect example, even though it's also kind of, forget the fact that it's going back in time a little, <laughs> but it still tells us that same basic concept. I, like right now, Hall. I'm dying to know what's going to go on in Hall, but I, it's hard to imagine right now what, there's no POV really that's anywhere near there. Well, I guess near technically, right. but. Uh, and I don't see anyone, any reason why anyone would be going there at this point. Yeah, surely it'll become important again, but at the moment it's kind of in a, it's in a lull. It's got the, the Holy Hundred <laughs> are holding the fort down. Holy 86. Yes, the Holy, holy yeah, we got to keep our, <laughs> hey, you just said you weren't a numbers person and there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you are a memory oh person. <laughs> I am. I am, in fact, a memory person. <laughs> so uh, there's. We've also got a short list of other potential locations we could see. Some of which we've barely seen. Some of which we've never seen. Uh, Night Fort we have seen. Not a lot of, but pretty good chance we'll see it. You, you're pretty sure we'll see Night Fort, right? I, I think. I think we'll go back to the Night Fort. There. There's too much kind of to play with there. You know. There's a lot. There's a lot of reasons why we could see it mm. and also the night fort is kind of the the one way that we know that you can get through the wall if brand needs to get back <laughs> right. through so <laughs> door, yeah. it may just be in, in terms of pure practicalities yes true that that's a very good point um next up we have east watch we, we have not seen it's been talked about a lot it seems to be in peril it's maybe been in visions <laughs> uh probably maybe not depending on melisandre you know we're, we're not sure about that that's a probably not but still it's it's still probably in trouble whether that vision was about it or not. Uh, I think if you're near the wall, you're probably in trouble. Yeah, right. Like it's actually might be better to be in the shadow tower. We'll probably never see the shadow tower. If, if bad things happen to the shadow tower, it'll be off page. But Eastwatch, we might see, although there's there's no POV there. So that might be another thing that we get off screen. But maybe Davos goes there, right? Is that is something, something you've considered? Well, or? I also think that I wouldn't be surprised if Arya goes through oh, Eastwatch yeah. and coming back uh, from Bravos. So. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, there's, it's either that or White Harbor. But Stannis specifically said he, he wanted Massey to send men to Eastwatch, or send archers to Eastwatch, et cetera. That's the, he, he specifically said that. So White Harbor's possible, but yeah, Eastwatch seems more likely. It's also, I think it's closer uh, by ship. Um, not, maybe not a lot closer, but anyway. Speaking of White Harbor, that's another possibility. Davos was tasked with going back through White Harbor. He's supposed to bring Rickon there. He's not supposed to bring Rickon to Eastwatch, as far as we know. Do mm -hmm. you think we'll maybe see White Harbor? Do you think Davos will go there, or maybe he'll be diverted? I could, I could see Davos going through there. I also think uh, Littlefinger is 
taking Sansa north, the best way to go at this point is by ship. They're not going to go through the Riverlands and up the neck that's war-torn at this point. Good point. It makes a lot more sense to go faster via ship up through White Harbor. And then if Rickon and also maybe Arya have already passed through... On the trail of her interesting, family. Interesting. <laughs> or that would be kind of a twist if they met, if one or two of them met there instead of at Winterfell. It seems like they're more likely to yeah. converge at Winterfell, but like actually like Arya and Sansa show up at White Harbor at the same time. That would be pretty wild. Be like, oh, well, hey, or Rickon or whatever. Like, hey, I know you. Hey, that's my brother. What the? <laughs> Fancy meeting you here. Another. Po- I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, hey, where you been, bro? Rickon's like, why is your hair brown? <laughs> Base Dothrak. Now let's go all the way to the other side of the world. That seems like very, very likely that Danny's going to go. One hundred percent. Yeah, like it's pretty hard. Not even a question in my mind. We're absolutely going back there. There's Daenerys has already envisioned it. Mm -hmm. There's no other possibility. They've already very clearly set up. This is this is where all of the Dothraki gather to be one. She's going to unite them. Yeah. It, it has to happen at Bias Dothraki. Yeah, I have to agree with that. It's, it seems pretty straightforward. The how is another matter. I, I'm going to enjoy reading it. The way George writes, it's going to be awesome. The, you know, just the way he wields words. Even if we have some idea of what's coming, it's going to be amazing to see the way he portrays it. But yeah, I think that is basically a foregone conclusion. Totally agree with you there. Volantis as well, I think is uh, maybe slightly less mm-hmm. of a foregone conclusion, but pretty darn certain. Uh, maybe we'll call that 99.9%, yeah. but still... Pretty no, I, I wrote a whole post about Volantis being doomed and very specific, the word doomed. The doom. um, there's no question yeah. in my mind that Volantis is 100% doomed, that there is going to be uh, a, a slave uprising led uh, and inspired by Daenerys nice. happening in the Winds of Winter. Absolutely happening. It'll fit in so nicely with the rest of the cities along the Rhine. <laughs> it's going to match. Now, it may not be like destroyed the city, like physically leveled, but... Yeah, the people in charge, they're done. <laughs> they're done. <laughs> but it might be, there might be lots of destruction too. Like, I don't know if like we'll see those whole, the black walls, like something like that. It'd be kind of an interesting parallel if like the black walls come down right around yeah, the time the wall comes down or something wild like that. Hard to, hard to say, but I definitely think if there's not a complete leveling of the city, it's definitely going to be Old Volantis as it was is is no more. Yeah, yeah. new Volantis. <laughs> it's no more old Volantis. Yeah, it's now the new Volantis. And, and let's not forget the random comment George said to me as I was having my world map signed at Worldcon when I put Michael Clarfeld's beautiful, huge map in front of him. He said, ah, the whole world. And as I walk, start to walk away, he's like, soon it'll, all this will be burning. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, whoa, spoiler. <laughs> so <laughs> that does somewhat argue for all these free cities get taking, at least some of them being torched. <laughs> Watch out, free cities. George is... Uh, Turns out when you. you base your whole life on slavery, it ends poorly <laughs> for you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Who could have guessed? <laughs> Now, one that, moving up along the coast here, one that I'm less sure about is Pentos. I think there's a good chance we'll see that. I wouldn't be able to call that a slam dunk like Vase Dothrock or Volantis, and probably not even White Harbor, but it's pretty likely. There's a lot of things pointing there. We got the Tattered Prince saying, I want it. We got Barristan saying, okay. And then we got Illyrio and Daenerys maybe kind of upending what's going on behind the scenes and uh, the conspiracy and all that. So... Do you, do you feel pretty strongly about that one too? 
I I think 100% that she's going to go through Pentos. Um, because at this moment, Daenerys has no reason to believe that Illyrio isn't still her friend. She thinks he still yeah. is. If, if Daenerys unites with Tyrion and Tyrion thinks the only way that I'm going to keep my head on my neck is to sell out Aegon to Daenerys, then the first thing he's going to say is, hey, by the way, Daenerys, did you know that your old friend Illyrio was planning on you dying so that Aegon <laughs> could be king? Yeah, that might not. She'd be like, I think Daenerys is going to go to him and say, hey, <laughs> hi, friend. Remember me? Remember when you thought that I was going to die and then you were going to plan to marry me so that your guy could be king? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's not going to fly with me. <laughs> yeah, she has questions. She will have questions. Yes, that that is going to be very interesting. It'll be a reckoning of sorts there. And because Tyrion won't have to put his thumb on the scale. You're right. He could just tell the straight truth that he learned. And that that alone is just like, what now? He he did what now? He was what now? What was the plan exactly? He was my brother. What? <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's going to be super interesting. Daniel, Daniel have to like rethink like back like back with then. Like she didn't trust Illyrio even back then at first. And, and Viserys sort of convinced her to like, no, he's you know, blah, blah, blah. But she was like, okay, you know, you would know better. And like, no, he wouldn't. But <laughs> she's she learned. Um, but she hasn't necessarily rethought some of those early lessons. The other thing that I think argues for Pentos is that Pentos is almost directly across from King's Landing mm -hmm. in terms of latitude. So if you're going to have a jumping off point. Yeah, she could go straight there or over to Dragonstone, which is also, you know, on the way. <laughs> so that is that fits really well. You're right, like as far as a travelogue, a journey, a path to map out, comes back from base Dothrak to Marine, goes around Valyria, hits Volantis, goes up the coast to maybe, I don't know, does she bother with Tyrosh? I wonder if like Tyrosh would be kind of in the way there. Like she could, I could, you could see her skipping over Lease because it's an island and it doesn't maybe have, I don't know, it doesn't seem like there's much reason to go there. Tyrosh, mm, what do you think about Tyrosh? Yeah, she'd probably have to, you kind of have to go out, out of your way to go to Tyrosh yeah. and there's not really much there for her, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess we don't seem to have a lot of reason. There doesn't seem to be a lot of reason to, for her to go there, at least not nothing we can think of. And it seems like, and given that so much is set up, it doesn't seem like super likely George will just insert a stop there, write a whole nother city, just something he can skip over when he's got so much else to write, you know? Because as far as Pentos goes, I mean, we haven't really seen it, right? We've been we've been inside Illyrio's right. pants. That's it. Like, Danny's been inside his pants, and Tyrion's been inside his pants, and we haven't seen outside the walls. Are we really sure that it exists? <laughs> it's a it's a liminal space. <laughs> yeah, Illyrio's <laughs> man, Illuminals, man's. So yeah, yeah, Pentos seems like yeah. I think I have to agree. Tyrosh, not super likely. The Stepstones are also kind of on the way. I don't know if that matters. If you know, we think about Orain Waters. I don't know if that proximity matters in terms of the ships running into each other because he's not going to like attack them. Like that doesn't. He'll mm -hmm. be massively outnumbered. But what is your, I guess while we're at it, what is, you have a general prediction for Orane Waters? Um, hard to say with Orane Waters yeah. because ultimately Orane is, is only working for Orane. Yeah. So the, the only thing he wants is to keep going up as, as far as he can. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, I wouldn't be surprised by anything Orane does. I wouldn't be surprised if the end of his story is just he's Pirate King of the Stepson. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if, he comes to Aegon and says, make me Lord of Driftmark. I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to come to Daenerys and say, make me Lord of Driftmark. <laughs> yeah. Like, literally nothing at this point would surprise me. The only thing that would surprise me is Arane saying, I've had enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's And that's cool because those of us who spend an awful lot of time thinking about this, if he's given us clues that tell us what's going to happen, we didn't catch him. So fun little small side character that we have a big question mark for. And yep, just another little mystery. One interesting question that I have, this is a much smaller location and I'm not sure what to do with it, is the Quiet Isle. Now, what we saw from the TV mm-hmm. show is Sandor gets activated, you know, like they bring me back in. <laughs> and something like that's got to happen. And I, it's kind of hard for me to picture that happening off page. Like just he just shows up one day. He's like, yeah, you know, the village I was at got slaughtered and here I am. Like, I feel like we have to see that, which is like, well, who's going to see that? Only way we see that is if it's like an epilogue or a prologue. Yeah. So, I mean, just thinking that through, that's kind of the conclusion I arrived at. I'm not sure that's a, I'm not sure George would use an epilogue or a prologue on that. Right. He might, though. What do you think about this idea? We have, you and I hadn't talked about this before. Usually, a lot of these things we've talked about in advance, <laughs> but this isn't one that I don't think we've talked about. So I'm curious what your live reaction no. to this idea would be. <laughs> Raw and unfiltered. Yeah. Um, no, I, it is, it is a question. There's a couple locations that, Richard Martin is clearly interested in, but I'm not really sure what he does with them. Yeah. And the Quiet Isles is certainly among that. Um, that Sandor is coming back in the story, I think, is unquestionable. But the, but the how is a little bit confusing. I don't think they would be an epilogue of The Winds of Winter, only because he seems to like to do those act breaks. Mm. There doesn't really seem to be a reason for an act break between The Winds of Winter and The Dream of Spring. This seems like this kind of the climax together. Maybe he would do it as a prologue of a dream of spring, but I don't know. It, would he spend a whole prologue just to kind of reintroduce Sandor Clegane, who by no means is an uninteresting character, but he is just one character. Right, yeah, exactly. Sort of it thing. just seems like there has to be something and he's else. Not yeah. a, he's not an endgame figure. I, I, I don't mean that in the sense that he can't be part of the endgame. I mean, he's not the others. Yeah. He's not like <laughs> the Night's Watch or something where this is crucial to the to the end of the story. He's He's one very interesting, very complex, but just one character. So maybe he would have someone stop over or he may just say, we've seen all we're going to see of the Quiet Isle. And Sandor comes back in the story and says, hey, I was gone for a little bit and now I'm back and I'm ready to go. <laughs> Who let the dog out? Oh my God. <laughs> but no, yeah, and, and what- That really is an unfiltered reaction. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I guess my question is, who do you think is, you know, ravaging the Quiet Isle then? Well, one of the reasons I segued from Orane Waters is that he's an outside possibility, but I think more likely it would be Euron. We see a little bit of, in the show, Euron kind of taking, like, doing stuff on all the coasts, kind mm-hmm. of off page a little bit, kind of, and that's not necessarily what's going to happen in the books, but it's being set up as... Uh, George has talked about how there's two big fleets, sometimes three in Westeros, the Royal Fleet, the Red Wine Fleet, and the Greyjoy Fleet. And the Royal Fleet we just talked about was stolen, what level left of it was there. And the Red Wine Fleet's about to be destroyed by blood and krakens. And I don't know exactly what, but it doesn't look good for them. So then my thought is if if you think possibly it's Euron's fleet, we have two POVs that could be with Euron. One, I really hope not, which is Sam Tarly. The other one is Aaron if he survives. So the idea that if Euron's men attacked the Quiet Isle, I feel like it would be significant for Aaron to see a bunch of, you know, religious people 
get yeah. sacked. I don't really think he's going to live that long, though. Personally. I don't either, but it, no. it, it does fit because, and we brought this up at the time when Brienne went to the Quiet Isle, how there was like, given what was going on in A Feast for Crows and talking about Euron and how he's on the rise, it's just like, well, the parallel between the Quiet Isle and Euron's silence is kind of like, eh, well, it, there may not be anything to that, but it's it's worth considering Given what you're saying, Nina, yeah, like if the, the whole POV, the whole prologue, if it's just about Sandor's return, it doesn't seem like enough for an epilogue or for a prologue or an epilogue. It's too small, even though he is an important character. But if there's something else happening, like say using the Veramir prologue as an example, like Veramir by mm. himself, not important. But the concepts he introduces in that chapter, the second life and seeing the others and mm. feeling what it's like to be burned by Melisandre's flames, even little things like that, those are pretty important details. Mm -hmm. So that could be what rounds this out, fills it out into something more mm. uh, substantial. Of course, my hope is that the prologue of A Dream of Spring is our friend Stone Snake somewhere. Behind <laughs> the <world. laughs> what the heck happened to that guy? <laughs> Come on, Stone Still Snake. Still alive. Not clear where he is. <laughs> yeah, he's hanging out with um, Sir Alistair. <laughs> the, the, the party of Lost Beyond the Wall. <laughs> and Benjamin. Don't forget Benjamin. Yeah, he's the, he's the founding member. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, there you are. It's like, yeah, I found this really. They're they're hiding in a grit's cave. They're like, dude, this boy. They, they, he's right. They should not have left this cave. Like, this is a really nice spot. Oh goodness. So Casterly Rock. That's one that George says we'll eventually see. And I figure mm -hmm. when's a winner? It's a pretty good like Dream of Spring will definitely have seen it by then, if not in it. So, but the question is whether we'll see it before that. I would guess yes. What do you think? I'm less convinced Casterly Rock. I'm more see Casterly Rock as happening in the Dream of Spring. Okay, um yeah. and that's more because I don't I don't really see Cersei leaving King's Landing. And I know that's something different people have different takes on. For me, I don't really see her leaving King's Landing at this point. Okay. Um so I don't think I think the, the person that Castle Rock matters to the most at this point is Tyrion. Mm. Um, and I think we need to see it through Tyrion. Uh, okay. And I don't think Tyrion gets back home until the very end of the Winds of Winter and then we would see him in a dream of spring. That makes so sense, yeah. kind of think that that's where that's going to go. But who's to say? <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, that's a very valid theory. Like, certainly wouldn't argue with that, obviously. Um, and I don't have a lot of confidence in seeing it in the Winds of Winter. It's one of those, like, I think it's like 60-40 kind of thing. So, mm. yeah. So, uh, we'll have to see. That's cool. We'll wonder about that. I'm, I'm dying to see what it looks like just because it's so cool. I mean, it's one of the neatest designs. I mean, it's, ideas it's a mountain. Cast. Yeah, right? It's just all these. I mean, we've, we've seen cool tunnels before, but usually the tunnels are, like, under the ground. This is, like, into a mountain that's above, like, well above ground. You got, Your you got whole tunnels castle up in the air. is a mountain. <laughs> yeah, it's just really cool. I'm, I'm, it's probably not going to be a huge part of the story, how cool it is, but I, just being a world-building nerd, I'm, I'm very interested. And the twins is kind of a cool world-building situation as well. Twin castles on a garden, both sides of a bridge. That's a, a sensible type of setup. And we may be seeing this place again. Do you think we'll go back to the twins? Uh, one m maybe sort of obvious thing to point to is, you know, Arya's thing on the show, which I don't think we're going to have that happen. Mm. But yeah. the twin, the, tw the phrase will have a comeuppance. So yes. that's why it might, it, it probably, it may not happen at the twins. It may not be Arya doing something like that. But the gist of it, the, they'll get their karma <laughs> and it may happen mm -hmm. at their own place. What, what do you think about that? Oh, I, I would not be surprised whatsoever uh, if we saw the, the twins again. Um, because at this point, 
I don't have really strong feelings on second Red Wedding or Red Wedding 2.0 theories, but that Davin Lannister is getting married to a fray and that something is probably going to happen then um, I think is uh, not unreasonable to conclude. And although it's often considered that that's going to happen at River Run, there's nothing actually saying that that's going to happen at River Run. Yeah. Um, it's entirely possible that that happens at the Twins. So I would not be surprised if a Red Wedding 2.0 scenario happens, which again, I have no strong feelings about, but if it happens, would not at all be surprised if that happened to the twins, would not be surprised if that's that's where we see a, a, a major fright come up. Right on. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Um, yeah, because it's, it's definitely kind of up in the air. Twins, River Run. Yeah, mm-hmm. we'll have to see. That's a very interesting location. We'll be coming back to talk about the prologue stuff in a minute, but we've got a few more locations to run through. Do you have any specific predictions for River Run? Obviously, the whole Tom O'Sevens being inside and, and all that is like, that's that's not a good... They're not... In, uh, we're obviously rooting for the VWB over... over. Uh, well, I mean, I, I would like Jenna Lannister to, to get out of that okay, but I don't know if there's a way for her to, for us to have our cake and eat it too. With um, with her husband being, I, I would say that uh, Emin Frey probably has bigger problems than whose name is on a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. He's going to have a lot more to complain about. <laughs> Some real things to complain about, and then nothing to complain yeah, about. Yeah, then he, he will be silenced. Yes, <laughs> forever. So here are some locations that have lots of H's in them. We have Horn Hill, we have Hard Home, <laughs> and we have Higha Garden. Yeah, that's how you pronounce it, Higha Garden. So do you think we'll see High Garden? It's certainly another one that George says we will see. That one I feel more strongly about being more likely in a Dream of Spring thing. But it could be in the winter. I, what do you think? I, I think we will go to High Garden and oh. I wouldn't be surprised because I think if Euron is taking over Old Town for whatever horrible magic he, he wants, Sam is going to want to get out of there. Uh, and I think his plan the only reasonable plan he really has is where's the safest place i can go is probably high garden that's the that's the next place to to go and kind of this is the center of anti-euron resistance in in the reach and maybe you know all of the south of westeros so no i i think i think there is and also i forget when but george R. R. martin did confirm that at some point we're gonna see willis and, and garland again yeah and uh they're they're, I think, both at High Garden. So I think I think there is a strong possibility that in the winds of winter, we go to High Garden. That's cool. Yeah, that would be neat. You know, and I think that the their hedge maze would work really well on the iron board. I mean, especially on Euron. Like, if you're, if you're on a strong psychedelic, a hedge maze will definitely throw you off. <laughs> that will be like, whoa. They'll be like, whoa, I was just here. Or was I? Oh. So they're well prepared. <laughs> Now, Horn... Victorian, just forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Horn Hill, more H's. That's, yes. uh, we could see Gilly go there, maybe Sam himself, maybe both of them. Obviously, Gilly's not a POV, but she could go there without us seeing it directly. Certainly, we saw it on TV, uh, briefly. What is your, what are your thoughts on Horn Hill's odds of being I'm- seen? My think very good and and kind of tied into the same reason that I think we're going to see High Garden mm-hmm. is you know Sam already his plan is to send Gilly to Hornhill. Yeah. I don't know if he's going to send her there immediately or if he's not going to have time before Euron takes over. But I think that Sam is going to when he leaves Old Town and try and get away from Euron. I think he's going to try and stop at Hornhill either to get Gilly and or 
warn his mom and sisters um because that seems like something that sam would do sam definitely cares about his mom and sisters and i think he'd want them to say hey there's this there's a crazy man who thinks he's a god king and he's working horrible (laughs) magic south you may want to leave geographically this makes more sense than what the show gave us because the show had him go to (laughs) horn hill first and then to the citadel right isn't isn't that what happened yeah because they ran off with the sword yeah of course that was weird, yeah, too. <laughs> so this makes more. Yeah, this this order of effects makes more sense. Like, yeah, the warning. And then he goes to tell them, hey, watch out, watch out. Yeah, I really like Dornish Dame here says from what we've learned of him, I feel like Willis is someone who would take Sam seriously in spite of Randall's attitude toward him, Ooh. which is a nice idea, which is just that Sam escaping would get up to High Garden to warn them. And that's where we would see High Garden. Oh, yeah, because yeah. you've got to have a PO. If you're going to see High Garden, you got to have a POV. And yeah, like Sam would be a sensible option. And there's a reason for him to try to go up there. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Very good take. So that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of reason for, yeah, Euron to move inland a bit. I mean, he's certainly going to control the seas, but he's not, that can't be it. If he he wants to take the Iron Throne, he's got to dominate other spots as well. He's got to shatter the existing power centers. That's one thing he's all about, is breaking the structures and breaking the traditions and just blowing up all the things that exist already so he can rebuild the world, you know, with his whole charnel pit vision and all that. So, yeah, that fits pretty well with, uh, I'd say it's a pretty, pretty much bullseye. Speaking of charnel pits, and uh, which, of course, is a mass grave, <laughs> hard home. Let's talk about that one. That is a perfect example of one that we might not get to see. It's hard to imagine who the POV would be for that, but not impossible. It's one that the show might have just been like, oh, we got to show this. It's too cool to not show. But, you know, we're not going to see it in the books. What, where do you fall on the spectrum of possibilities for Hard Home? When you were talking about The Quiet Isle, that's kind of the same way I feel about Hard Home, yeah. which is that George R. R. Martin clearly likes this location. He clearly wants to do something with this location. But practically speaking, is there a reason to do something with this location? Is there a reason he can justify? I mean, as an author, he can do anything he wants. He could write a character to be anywhere and and justify it. But is there a practical reason in the story that we would have a character go to hard home and do something? Because the entire point, or at least my opinion, the entire point of the second hard home mission that uh, John plans is that this is a terrible idea that would never <laughs> work. Hard home is nowhere near the wall. It is absolutely crawling with whites and others. The people don't want to come with you. There's no way to march there in winter. You can't sail there in winter. This is a this is not a good place to get to. There's there is no practical way to get to this place. So why would you go there is sort of, is sort of the question. But George Martin clearly likes this location. He likes the idea that there was this cataclysmic event 600 years ago that turned it into whatever the heck it is today. He likes the idea that there's these crazy screaming caves and you know, strange, strange elements to it. He clearly likes this location. So again, he can do anything he wants. He could justify whatever he wants. Do I necessarily think we would go to Hardhelm? No, but... Would I be surprised if he came up with a reason to send a character to Hardhome? Also, no. <laughs> yeah, same. We've gotten a couple comments throughout the episode um, with one way that we could see both Quiet Isle and Hardhome. Here from Guilty Undertaker, they say, I think Hardhome's fall will be witnessed remotely by Bran and or John. Very possible. And okay. Dornish Dame also said, Quiet Isle could maybe be one for Bran Raven if that becomes a scene. 
Mm. That obviously we've talked about how that opens us up so much more. Very good job, y'all connecting those dots. You're right. Like we do have, we just broached the subject of a new potential that George has given us for how POVs can be shown or like brands POV breaks the existing rules. You're right. Maybe we should look outside the box a little bit. That's a great point. Yeah. Like Nina just said, George can write it any way he wants. No, there's no saying he can't do that. No saying he won't do that. Speaking of uh, a semi-magical location, maybe not magical, but mystical, certainly surrounded by thoughts of such, is uh, another compelling location that has been in the realm of the book since the beginning. Like early chapters, we've been hearing about Starfall. And we know we're going to go there one day, right? It's, we're definitely going to see it. But it, will it be during Winds of Winter? Will it be Dream of Spring? Will it be both? Probably not both. What do you think about Starfall? I have a goofy theory that I'll finish this off with because I don't think it's that, it's not very serious. It's an idea I had like 20 years ago. But uh, so let's, let's have a, a more reasonable set of ideas first. Oh my goodness. Well, no, I've been saying probably like a hundred times, probably every time that I'm on the show, I say this and I'll keep saying every time <laughs> I'm on the show until the Winds of Winter comes out is that I don't feel confident about basically anything about the Ariel Hota storyline in the Winds of Winter. Okay except for the fact that I think it will feature Star <laughs> Um And the reason I think that is, is because I think George R. R. Martin sort of wrote himself into a corner where he wanted the Danes to be a really big deal and wanted to reveal a lot of information about the Danes. And then the five-year gap didn't happen. And uh, little Edric Dane stayed a 12-year-old and he couldn't have him be <laughs> sort of the morning. So... Look at this. How about I just insert another Dane into the story mm. in a different context? Another double um, H name. Hi, Hermitage. Woohoo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I think the practical storytelling reason that the Ariota storyline will exist in the Winds of Winter is for George R. R. Martin to reveal information about the Danes and the Tower of Joy that he was going to reveal in a different way at some point. Mm. And this is kind of the only way he can. So we're going to go to Starfall. We'll probably meet Wyla. We'll hear some weird things, and that will help set up the reveal, which I think will also probably come in the Winds of Winter, of John's biological parentage. Ah, yes. Now I very much agree with that, and I and because of those key plot points is so oh, that's it's the core of this is the beginnings of the story, John's parentage, Ned's mysteries, Willa, all that stuff is super important and completely unresolved still, and it did begin there, and and as you said. Uh, George definitely has had to change his plans midstream. In fact, even one of the blurbs at the end of the uh, one of the books even says on the back, it's like, the, the, you know, events that will culminate at Starfall. It's like, will they? That <laughs> <laughs> was like on the back of one of the books, the jackets or something like that, like a long time ago. the same one with the seas of Winterfell? It might have been the shore. Yeah, the shores of winter. Yeah, geez, man. Come on, guys. Look, read the Read the book a little bit before you write a description of it. Yeah, that's a really, really good set of possibilities. So I think we have to go to Starfall. You're right. And, and you're also right about the Edric Dane stuff. I completely agree. Uh, it's interesting that George is giving us kind of a... He was building Edric to be like this perfect kid, right? Like really like the, the sword of the morning, like an honorable, uh, unassuming, humble, but possibly badass, probably badass. If he's going to wield Dawn, he's badass. Yeah. He's already badass. He stayed by Beric. Uh, during the battle and yeah. fought off people. You're right. So he's already bad. You're right. He's already there. He was set up. He, he, this, he was headed in that direction and he was like, I'm going to be the sword of the morning. And George is like, actually, sorry, kid. I don't know about that. <laughs> Five-year gap. 
He's probably as tall as Dolph. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, if if Dark Star came in and he was added and he's darker than Edric <laughs> would have been conceivably, is that at all possible that the five-year gap would have had things go poorly for Edric so that he was in a little bit of a darker spot? Mm-hmm. I tend to think of him as such a pure, wholesome boy that Which nothing could happen to him. But five years, the Brotherhood Without Banners is broken up. Huh. I, I, it might not have gone great for him. He wouldn't be the, He wouldn't be as bad as Darkstar, but he might have gotten... Yeah, he might be, like, traumatized or darker. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I don't know. It's definitely and, a different character. It may character, have even but. had sort of shades of what Brienne explores about knighthood in A Feast yeah. for Crows, where it's not that Brienne becomes a bad person by, by no means, but she's going through really hard things in that book. Yeah, that's a really good idea. That's a good call, Shea. Um, I never thought about like considering, because they just seemed like, well, like night and day, which is like the <laughs> idea, like night and day. And they're... Can't, can't which, yeah, if, if they are like <laughs> night and day, that would make you think that he planned on Dark Star yeah. before the five-year gap, which I don't think we know that he didn't. He might have, right? Yeah, there's a chance. I would I would definitely guess not, but there's, yeah. you're right. There is a chance. Okay, well, here's my goofy theory, because why not? Let's have some fun here. I'm not sure I've ever said this one on the podcast before. Maybe I have like a long time ago. I don't know. We've been doing this a while. So the idea was that it's not a pattern, but it could be a pattern that we started the second book with a maester prologue and the fourth book with a maester and training prologue. So maybe the sixth book would start with the maester. Doesn't seem likely. It could be. But if it happened a third time, then it, we probably could call it a pattern. The idea would have been, a, my idea was a, a maester at Starfall would be how we get the prologue. Mm-hmm. So the maester at Starfall is there. He's just chilling. He's looking at Dawn on the wall where it sits. And all of a sudden it just ignites. It just turns on like <laughs> Lightbringer. And just like, he's like, oh, you know, and like he's the only one that sees it. You know, and it's like I don't think the sword works like that. But, but I'm, like, I'm just imagining that Dawn is in a box, and the box is labeled "In case of apocalyptic <laughs> crisis, please break glass." In case of long night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, super chat from TKOK Podcast Network says, "Loved all the sample chapter episodes and guests. Very fitting and wonderful to have Nina to uh, wrap it up." Two of the brightest minds Aww. in the fandom on display today. Thank you very much, Tommy. And that is an excellent... Well, who's the second one? <laughs> <laughs> You're one. Who's the second one? <laughs> uh, and so Tommy is going to be our guest next week. We have an episode planned called The Lost Valyrian Steel. Mostly weapons, but not entirely weapons. There's some other non-weapon Valyrian Steel things that we'll talk about. So that'll be fun. And uh, that's next Sunday. So that's the uh, the 20th. Yeah, for people not watching live. So back to what we were saying about brand and POV options. It's a good segue to talk about where that's uh, a big thing that's happening in the books. Like the supernatural has always been a part of the story, but it's all, it's, it's gradually increased in frequency and intensity. Ned Stark is a favorite example of mine. The dude is super important to the story. Of course, like he's a, a seminal important character he's an example there's still his his effect is still being felt in the you know in the storyline his people are still fighting for his family and for his children and all that in his entire 15 or however many chapters what supernatural things happen in his chapters anything I, there's not there's nothing <laughs> so that's a good example of that and then as it, it obviously builds up we talked about in clash of kings it starts with 
Bran starts getting his wolf dreams. It really picks up. But even by the end of A Dance with Dragons, most of the POVs only have a little bit of supernatural or almost none going on. Just among these sample chapters, just these sample chapters that we've seen so far, ones that are only set up. Remember, we were talking about that before. These aren't even the meat of the book, yet they still have huge amounts of supernatural. Like Night, Night Ford and Hard Home are a reminder that we're headed towards new levels of supernatural. And again, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Most of it was left out of the TV show. Most of the supernatural stuff that George planned for the books, the TV show guys are like, eh, we're just going to drop that. So that's going to be a lot of unexpected twists and details and lore and epic mystery that we just can't predict. And that fits really well with the we have no idea what's coming type attitude. Um, this really backs that argument up, I think. But for the first time, I think we can say we have overtly supernatural things happening in almost every single plot line on the regular instead of just every once in a while here and there. You know, branch chapters have com- constant supernatural stuff, but there's not that many branch chapters. Branch presence seems to be a part of the Theon chapter via the Ravens and or nearby Heart Tree. Euron's battle plan involves, well, we'll see, but there's blood and priests and artifacts and magical drugs and the shadow of the old gods on him too, right? Not just all this other stuff. Uh, Not to mention the place he seems to be aiming for, where where Sam is unknowingly dealing with, you know, ancient texts and an actual faceless man in close proximity. Arya's also, of course, dealing with faceless men, but her plot line is also gaining more magic steam. Right? She's closer to the inner sanctum than she's ever been. And she's having dreams of Nymeria and she skin changed a cat. Right? Like, this is definitely on the rise in her perspective. Even Ariane's chapter is not exactly chock full of eldritch delvings, but we got both ends of it in a sense, right? We got the old gods in those caves that she went down to, the other forest of stone trees where they're like, oh, this is, this is creepy and it's a really interesting scene. And then the chapter before that, she's face to face with the dragon dreamer in Dorne. You know, she's warning that the dragons are coming. That's pretty interesting. And it's very, very much supernatural. And Ariane's headed to deal with a faction partly led by a man secretly concealing a magical disease, which originated thanks to the dragons coming, just like the bit in Dorne. So, yeah. And then, of course, Slaver's Bay. They're engaged in warfare, which isn't supernatural, but there's dragons overhead, and there's a dragon horn wielded by a pirate lord with a flaming arm. coming or has arrived already. So there's that's pretty supernatural. And then Makoro is there. Really, only Sansa is the only one that we've really seen that you could say maybe there's no magic at all in her chapter yet. But she's everything in her arc is pointing towards heading to the north where there's going to be plenty of that to go around. So, I mean, not to mention that the others seems like the name of the book is really pointing towards a lot more of them. We haven't even mentioned John and his undeadness and his second life, Danny, with her dreams and her dragon, Stoneheart, the mountain, the kyborg, a.k.a. Yeah, so I've said my spiel. Supernatural's all over the place. How do you react to this or feel about this? Or is there anything I missed? Or what do you have to say about that? No, I, I think that's all really good. And I think it's all very valid to point out. And I think it's always worth reminding that this is a fantasy series. It's a fantasy series that cares about its world building. It's a fantasy series that likes to spend time on the political side and, you know, describing various aspects of its world. But this is, at the end of the day, a fantasy series. And it's a fantasy series where the main conflict, the real only conflict that matters, is the war between humanity and an unseely court-esque race of ice monsters who want to destroy and enslave everything we know is life. 
Hmm. So there's no getting away from the fantasy. There is no putting aside the fantasy and saying, well, this part of the book is a fantasy and this part of the book isn't. Everything is going to tie into the fantasy. Everything is going to reflect that in some way. And I think you are going to see more of it in The Winds of Winter because, you know, I, I said this before and I'll say it again. We're in act three at this point. We're in we're in the climax stage. So mm-hmm. this is this is where that central conflict is going to come to the fore and is going to be the most prominent. So yeah, I, I think we're gonna see even more supernatural. I think it's going to be even more in your face. And I think that that's really clearly pointed out by by these ample chapters. Right on, well said. I have a question. You said you think Sansa will have the least amount of magic. Um, well, I was saying currently, yeah. Currently, yeah, yeah currently. Uh, my question, I posed it to the chat as well. Do you think Sansa will skin change again? Mm. Like, again, I say, will, will she skin change? I would guess no. But uh, if some people someone think has she might into answer, a bird. There's so much bird imagery for her. Uh, I, I could see it. Um, George R. Martin has been very clear that all the Stark kids are skin changers. Um, and it's something that Sansa is not completely uh averse to she's just had the least experience and the least opportunity for experience with so if she were put in a situation where she was made more aware of her own ability to skin change maybe yeah um do i think that that's sort of the main point of sansa as a character probably not Mm. um but i could but i could see it happening yeah and it's almost like it's interesting too because like the veil as we talked about at the time when we talked about this elaine chapter it's almost like there's a like it's in its own bubble. Like the, and we talked before mm-hmm. as well about how the werewoods won't grow there. It's almost like a magical dead zone in a sense, but she's leaving there. She's going to leave there. So <laughs> if it's going to happen, it probably wouldn't have happened there. But when she leaves, yeah, maybe, maybe. One other thing to add here is that George is, of course, the core of the story, you're right, it, it, as far as the plot line is the others. The, this is the big thing we're building up to. And then whatever happens after that, which will be very substantial as the, Westeros picks itself back up again or, or whatever. But of course, it's very much told through characterization, the POV style and how the characters deal with this conflict. And so I think what George has done is he's brought this along slowly to show how these characters are, to show how they behave, to get how they behave in situations that we're at least somewhat familiar with. I mean, we haven't fought in civil wars, probably most of us or any of us, but we have dealt with relationships and politics and normal human situations that come up in, in these books. If we were just to start off with things like what Waymar Royce faced, uh, or Garrett, like we would have very little perspective for like, I wonder how, you know, I, I know how he feels, <laughs> you know, but we've gotten to know John and Danny and Sansa and all these characters. And so when they start to interact with things that we just can't conceive of in our own world, we have this basis for their personality and it will allow George to have these characters react in ways that we find satisfying. We find realistic based on the personalities he's given them over quite a while of buildup. And that's important. These characters, we know them very well. So we have sort of expectations for how they may react to certain stimuli. But when the stimuli is something like vast and unknowable and dangerous and evil and dark and that, well, even that we can't predict. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... 
What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Let's do the Riverland slash Westerlands prologue. This is pretty exciting. We've got a few details. We've been able to think through some things here, and we've come up with some things that I haven't seen talked about elsewhere. So maybe we will introduce you to some new thoughts here. One thing uh, very important here, we know from George directly, he said it, that Jane Westerling will be in this prologue. That tells us a lot. Be in, probably not be the prologue, or probably not be the POV herself. So that narrows it down a bit. We also have a few other details. So I'm going to lay out some details and then I'm going to turn it over to Nina and we will discuss the possibilities. To back it up, what happened was Jamie sends Sir Forley Prester, 400 men and some knights to escort Jane Westerling, Edmure Tully, Sybil Spicer, Gawain Westerling, and... And then their other two children, right. Alina and Rollam. Right. I couldn't remember their name. Alina and Rollam. That's right. And of course, there was the... I told you, I'm the memory person. That's right. See, yeah, yeah. And then we also have, we also have a character named White Smile Watt. I'll talk about her, more, him more in a minute. Um, Rosalind Frey is not there. Rosalind Frey is at the twins. She's pregnant. And Jamie told her she could join Edmure at Casterly Rock after the birth. So where they're headed is they're headed west to Casterly Rock, but also to the crag, right? The, the, the Westerlings are going back to their castle. And Forley Prester is leading... Edmure to Cashley Rock for him to take up his imprisonment. So that's the setup, basically, for the party. Now, Jamie's very worried about what could what might could happen to this party, and we are right there with you, Jamie. I don't know about worried, but more like excited. <laughs> so there's a couple of possibilities, though. It's very interesting. One thing to keep in mind is that Stoneheart just basically ambushed Jamie with Brienne's assistance, blackmail, uh, whatever. He forced her to help. So they're probably not a part of this. They're like on the way to King's Landing, whereas this party's going the opposite way. So while Jamie and his group headed east back towards King's Landing, this group is heading west. Also very, very important, Kevin Lannister in his epilogue, actually before his epilogue, he tells Cersei, right, that Jamie went off with some woman. We know who that was, but he doesn't. Uh, so they've already gotten news that Jamie disappeared. But whatever happened to this group, no news has reached King's Landing which by itself is very telling. It might mean the entire party was wiped out, which if that happened, that's a lot of people. We just had 400 men and some knights, which is, wow. Uh, I mean, even outside Winterfell, when Ramsay slaughtered all those people, a few of those guys got away, right? A few people escaped that. A few people escaped the Red Wedding, you know? So wiping everyone out is difficult. But if the people that escaped were just a few nobodies, they may not have been able to tell anyone important. Maybe news hasn't reached. I don't know, but it's something to factor in very importantly. Uh, so we have a possibility. People, different people who could attack the train, different people who want different things, different things to worry about. We'll start off by talking about what might happen, and then we'll move on to who we think the POV is going to be. You know, I think, I think you really nicely laid out, you know, in terms of kind of the setup for this, and that goes straight into, you know, what's going to happen. And I think it's, it's pretty widely accepted, and I think, I think a, a correct thought at this point that there's going to be an attack on this train by the Brotherhood Without Banners. Jamie Seven really, really, really strongly implies this. Um, first, we have Jamie thinking about Forley Prester's men. He thinks that she's taking 100. And Jamie thinks, no, actually, we should be, we should be doubling that. And then he meets up with Forley later <laughs> and notes, Forley didn't just double it. Forley quadrupled yeah. it. 
we've got 400 men. There, there's really no reason for the author to, to twice hang a lampshade on that. <laughs> if he's going to say, and actually there was no conflict and there was no reason to have extra men and it was totally fine. <laughs> he's setting up the idea there is going to be an armed conflict here. That's the, the paranoia is, is real here. It's, it's, it's a real, real basis. And what's Jamie specifically worried about? He's worried not only that there's going to be an attack, he thinks it's going to be by Brynden or Lord Beric, neither of whom I think are actually going to be involved. Well, Beric can't be because he's yeah. actually dead. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Brynden's going to be involved goes to show Jamie's either. intelligence is a little behind, yeah. <laughs> but he's worried that someone is going to try and break out Edmure Jane or both. And that's not an illogical reasoning. Yeah. If you have the rightful Tully Lord of River Run. Jamie already knows, thanks to the conversation he had at Derry, that the river lords are not happy about this situation. He knows that r- certain river lords have been actively helping the Brotherhood without banners. They're clearly not happy with the Freys and Lannisters being in charge of the situation. If they know that the rightful Tully Lord of River Run is being transported, yeah, it's not a bad thought that someone's going to try and break him out. Even more so if they know that. Uh, Rob's widow is traveling with them. Very easy possibility to think someone's going to try and break her out and someone's going to present any baby as her and Rob's baby and continue the fight against the the Baratheon Lannister regime. So yeah, Jamie's not illogical in thinking that someone would try to break them out. So he talks to Forley and Forley says, oh, don't worry. If Edmure steps one foot off the train, I'm, I'm going to shoot him. And Jamie thinks, yeah, that's a good idea. And also make sure you do the same to Jane mm. because she's really, really dangerous. Yeah. That to me suggests something is going to yes. happen with one or both of them in this. Because that's again, yeah. there's really no reason to point that out unless something was going to come up later with them. Yeah. So yeah, there's going to be an attack. Something is going to go down. It's not going to be pretty. <laughs> <laughs> it is not. Yeah. So let's let's think about who could be the POV, and then we'll come back. So that'll illuminate some of the other possibilities for how we expect this to play out uh, and how we can be presented. Now, as we said, it probably won't be Jane. Uh, one of the early predictions, possibilities, ideas that popped up when this when George spoke on this was Sir Forley himself. I don't really think that's terribly likely. Jamie described Sir Forley as really solid. Uh, he's a good choice for this thing because he's not normal. He's boring. And that's what he wants for this. You want boring, someone who follows orders, someone who's not going to be too imaginative or clever, someone who just does what he's told, which doesn't make for a great POV. Although it could. I mean, we're just witnessing action here potentially that could work out. But I think there's some more compelling possibilities. Ed Muir himself, probably not. Uh, he's probably not going to be too privy to the act. He's probably too much of a prisoner to be able to see what's happening. Uh, White Smile Watt is an option here. He's a singer who's been with the Lannister army like this whole time. He's He was with Tywin's army at Harrenhal. We've we've been hearing about White Smile Watt since Clash of Kings. He probably isn't anyone important, but given that George, uh, he's kind of a person who's not directly attached to any of the politics around here. He's kind of a guy in the middle. Does White Smile Watt just like have a toothbrush? <laughs> Yeah, how does he have yeah, such white that teeth? what makes him special? <laughs> so there's also a small chance he's an informer or a spy. Like you always got to worry about that with singers because they they get to go places that they sometimes have access to things that other people don't have. They get to be at court. They get to hear things. So 
the other possibilities, like I said, with the with the if we if we go back to my my silly dawn idea that I had 15 years ago, we could have a maester traveling in this group as our POV. That seems a little random for that. I don't know why we would need a maester for this to tell us this bit, but it, you know, it's worth mentioning. Someone else in the Brotherhood Without Banner, someone who gives us a, a, a front row seat to the attack could be interesting if that's what's going to happen. But I uh, also Blackfish, right? Blackfish is a possibility. Although I think that's not likely because the prologue characters so far have all died. And I think that would be kind of a strange way to have the Blackfish die, given that he escaped for this larger role only to die during the, uh, the first thing he does afterwards. Eh, that doesn't work too well for me. I've got one more off-the-cuff possibility, but I want to save that for last because I think your idea is the, is the one I prefer now. So I want to let you run with it because there's a lot of reasons this fits really well. And I think we can say more about just this one option than we've said about all these other options put together because it fits so well. Of course, given that lead-in, the Bureau of Paper like, no, of course not. Like, no, <laughs> no, no, this is a really good idea. I think the idea that I like most, and you're absolutely right, I'm saying it, which means that it will not happen. But the <laughs> idea that I like the most is that the POV character is Sybil Spicer. And I think that this would be interesting for a lot of different reasons. Sybil is a very different kind of POV character than we've had. Um, certainly, we've never had a woman as a prologue or epilogue POV. But even beyond that, Sybil is very different from all the other female POVs that we have. With the probable exception of Melisandre, um, who was sold as a slave at some point, but otherwise her background's pretty cryptic. Yeah. Every single female POV we've had is a woman or child from the upper echelon of Westerosi aristocracy. Yeah. They, they're all, which is not to say that their lives have always been luxurious or always easy, certainly not. But they're all very much aware that they're blue bloods. They're all very much aware, yeah, our, our families have been the ruling class in Westeros and for Daenerys and Valyria for thousands of years. There is no question of what our place in the social order is. And they have certain expectations of the universe because of that privilege. But Sybil is not. Sybil is very different. Sybil is a woman who is on the lowest rung of Westerosi aristocracy. She is second generation nobility. And she knows this is something that's very much looked down upon in Westeros. People consider her family upjumped merchants. People consider her children have doubtful blood because of her. People feel bad for Gowan for having to have Mary, yeah. you know, in, in their minds. So <laughs> she knows this is. This is something that's looked down upon, and this is something that influences her decisions. I'm not by any means saying you need to feel sympathetic for Sybil, um, but you can have a POV character who is ultimately unsympathetic but still has a, a complex and interesting history. Yeah, it's, 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 um, if I, I could jump in just for a second, I want to point out this is this is what made this is part of what made Sybil and Walder Frey get along. I think is part of what helped mm. this arrangement form in the first place. Of course, they didn't. You know, he she was more dealing with Tywin, but. <laughs> the the fact is that Frey himself is very much of the same, like, they look down on us, they look down on us, like, mm -hmm. pride, it's a big deal to him. So, like, that that really, their hatred of, of how they're treated while wanting to be a part of the people hating them is uh, a very familiar uh, aspect or, or, or topic that has come up a lot. Please continue. Absolutely. And I... And I think that exploring that could be really, really interesting. You know, what was it like for Sybil growing up? How did she meet Gowan? How did she marry him? What did she think of everything that happened? Does she have any regrets? Or does she think my children would never have gotten this far without me doing what I what I did? I had to do what I had to do or else my children would have been, you know, languishing in, you know, basically obscurity among the nobility. I don't know. And it's, and it's interesting to explore. And 
that kind of leads to the other next point of why I think Sybil is interesting, which is if there's anyone that can be considered the winner of this train, <laughs> Sybil's the winner. You know, four of these men, this is just all in a day's work for them. They're just, you know, keeping up the Lannister regime. That's that's part of the job description. Um, Edmure is certainly not winning here. Gowan is, you know, it has the same rewards as Sybil, but he also spent most of the War of the Five Kings as a prisoner of war. So, um, you know, not, not exactly great. Jane's certainly not happy for good reason. Yeah. Um, and I don't think the younger kids really have a lot of say on any of this. Mm. But Sybil, Sybil's really won. She lost her oldest son, certainly, and that's and that's not something to be glossed over. But her children, or you know, her daughters are promised to lords or heirs. Her brother's been made lord of a very ancient seat. They've been completely pardoned by the Lannisters. There's going to be no retribution. She's won. So the person... It, it, it might go without saying, but the person who uh, loses the most is the person with the most to lose. If there's going to be an attack on this train, then the most interesting viewpoint might be from the person who has the most to lose here. And and that's Sybil. And, and the other point why I think Sybil is an interesting choice is that I do think Sybil is doomed. I, I don't think that anyone who's involved in the Red Wedding is is escaping uh, sort of divine punishment. <laughs> there's there's no there's no sort of crossing that line and and coming back from it. And certainly Sybil didn't actively plan the logistics of the Red Wedding, um, but she knew Rob was going to die, and and she was and she was part of that plan. So Sybil is doomed, and I think she's doomed in kind of a very specific way, which is if we can consider Sybil's crime for lack of a better term i'm not sure exactly what you'd call it but um (laughs) if Sybil's crime is you know i prevented rob from having children so that my own children could advance then what is sort of the contrapasso punishment for Sybil? it's you will have no descendants you will have no heirs you will see your own children die um because you prevented rob from from ever having heirs of his own so yeah i think that Sybil is doomed and i think that not only is she gonna die but I think our kids are going to die. It's already been very heavily foreshadowed that oh, yeah. uh, something's <laughs> going to happen that would make Forley shoot Jane. And is it impossible to believe that the kids would be caught in a crossfire? I don't think so. They're right there. Mm-hmm. They are right there. Yeah, I think this whole bit with Maggie the Frog is super interesting. You're right. That is uh, one of the... F- right. That is super... That was like, something uh, I didn't even point out, which is... Yeah, <laughs> tell us I about forgot. that. This is huge. Yeah, this is a really big deal. Right. So Sybil, uh, Sybil obviously is Maggie's granddaughter. Um, her, Sybil's father is Maggie's son by the, by the Spicer Merchant. So if anyone, you know, if this is the book where Cersei's prophecies with Maggie the Frog come to fruition, and I, and I think that it is, it's been, what, 16 years since we've yeah. had uh, Maggie the Frog's prophecies? Probably would do to have a refresher. You know, just a little bit of a mention to get the brain thinking of, oh, right, Maggie the Frog. I remember her. I remember what that was. It doesn't have to be that Sybil says, and here is what Maggie the Frog told Susie. <laughs> she just has to name drop Maggie the Frog and say she was a fortune teller to be able for the reader to say, Oh, right. And Maggie was the one who told Cersei how it was going to go down. And what did she tell Cersei? (laughs) Well, it's very natural for Sybil to think because, again... Maggie's her grandmother. Yeah. Who else would think of her? <laughs> <laughs> it's so perfect. Yeah, and and it's not just that, but as if if we're one thing we can feel pretty confident about is your your estimation that Sybil will not escape justice for the Red <laughs> Wedding. So if she's going to die, this is the only chance and the only character that can really tell us about Maggie the Frog, other than Cersei, who's already 
told us what we need to know. And it's the last chance to do that. Not only is she the only character that can do it, but it's the only chance to do it. It's not like she's going to become a POV later. That's, that's, not, that's not on the table. George has said there won't be new POVs other than, you know, prologue, epilogue type stuff. So that's that. It really just eliminates the possibility. If he's going to do it, it has to be now. And wow, does that set up exactly what's happening with Cersei? It's such a brilliant parallel. You've got the woman who's the granddaughter of the person who gave this prophecy to Cersei. The prophecy states that Cersei's victories will turn to ashes in her mouth, which is what you just made a point of saying. Sybil just won. <laughs> and she's like, right when she's got these victories, she's like, yep, I win. Right when her joy turns to ashes in her mouth, it's setting up to do that right here in this, in this prologue. And it sets up Cersei herself having that happen later in the book as a lead into that. It, it's an amazing set of parallels created by this character being the POV, the things she can think about, the things she set up, things that are, are going to happen to a more important character in this book, Cersei, or losing her kids. Uh, yeah. Wow. That is really, really strong. Um, and of course, both Sybil and Cersei have already lost an oldest son. So yeah. even more of a parallel. That is very true. Shout out to Gawain Westerling himself. Like you said, he spent most of the war in the in the in prison. Like we have no idea what he thinks about all. He's probably like, I can't believe you did that woman. You know, like how did you arrange that? Or might be, he might be like, actually, well played. Like I have, no, I have no idea what he thinks. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not entirely. I I don't know how to feel about Gallon, considering the only response we get about Gallon is from Kevin Lannister, you know, noted war criminal, saying that he's a good man. So <laughs> I'm not sure that's really an endorsement of Gallon. <laughs> So let me introduce another concept here and another possible character that could be the POV. This would be a little, um, a little unique, a little different, but it may be already set up by the possibility of what we saw at the beginning of Dance of Dragons with having a Veramir POV, which is the, the idea that Nymeria will be in this chapter. The tinfoil idea is that she would be the actual prologue character. That's probably too much. That's probably too much. George writing a whole chapter from a wolf POV Probably not going to happen, but it has got to be considered. I also will repeat a theory I, I, I posted, I think, during the Mercy chapter or suggested during the Mercy chapter, which is that I think if the prologue contains Nymeria, which I think it will, um, as we'll lay out some evidence for, Mercy's chapter starts with a wolf dream. She's just, it's, a, it's the first thing that happens. She's waking up. She's feeling like she was just chasing people. There was blood. There was prey. It could be the prologue and then right into Mercy uh, with the wolf pack being kind of the last thing we see. Like, And the way I think this really fits nicely is the if you look around at the rest of the book and what we're seeing, uh, looking at prominent themes that appear in the other sample chapters, and prologues often make grand statements about the rest of the book they're kicking off. For example, we just talked about how big a deal Baramir's chapter set up, what was going on there, and, and the setup for the others in the first book, et cetera. It's huge, right? There's a reason why the, the prologues are so important. The reason why the Clash of Kings prologue is the longest chapter in all of the books. The early, one of the early themes of the Winds of Winter chapters is prey becoming the predator or hunter becoming the hunted. It, it, depending on which metaphor you prefer, they're pretty much the same concept. For example, the Yunkish go from besiegers to trap between two armies. Victorian lured them in part by looking like helpless fishing boats and such. Stannis aims to look like a helpless prey to a fray predator, but it's a lure. His weakness is bait to get them into a location where they can be killed easily. Raph the Sweetling thinks he's on the hunt when he's actually being lured to a location where he can be killed easily. Barristan leads his men towards the strongest enemies, only to veer off at the last moment to attack the weakest enemies. 
right? He pretended to go for the strong ones and then went for the weak point. Tyrion and Jorah engineer a switching of sides, culminate with a literal backstabbing, actually through the neck. As, as that guy falls, he turned the table. He hit a side vast board and turned it over. So it's like, yeah, turning the tables. George was all over the metaphors in that scene. We might also see Darkstar uh, turn the tables on the ones sent to bring him to justice. Like, that's a theory that's been out there. A Victorian strikes the Yunkish lines from behind. Manderley will probably strike the Freys from behind. The friends in the Reach will quite possibly stab the Tyrell forces from behind while they're facing the Golden Company. The Redwine and Hightower fleets aim to trap Euron's fleet, but they are aware of this plan. And remember how the one guy's laughing about being taken in the rear, and they know it's coming. They're, it's a lure. They're planning on this Krakens or whatever. And instead of an attack from behind, it's an attack from below. Same basic concept. To reconcile the notion that this prologue will contain the wolf pack with the possibility that the prologue will contain the Brother Without Banners, perhaps it will contain both. Imagine that while the Brotherhood Without Banners is stalking the Westermen, the wolves are stalking the Brotherhood. It would nail a theme we somewhat expect to be central to this book. Humanity caught fighting itself when the old God's revenge comes down on them. It's be kind of a microcosm of that instead of the others sweeping down on the North while it's engaged in the Stark succession crisis or what have you, you've got this smaller version of that, two small factions going at it while the wolves sweep over them all. That's exactly what happened in the very first prologue of the first book. Mm-hmm. Sir Waymar and his co- company are looking for wildling raiders. They're trying to attack some free folk that attacked them and the others come down on them. <laughs> so we've been seeing this pattern since the very beginning. Uh, we even saw it at, uh, in Dazanak's pit. We got uh, a boar killed Barsena only for a dragon to come kill the boar. Yeah, we've just been seeing this all along. So what do you think about, like, do you think the wolf pack will appear in this chapter at all? Or, or do you think maybe that's just something else that we can't, it's too hard to mash these two ideas together? Or what does this hard all do to, for you? Hard to say. Yeah, hard to say because I... You know, the one thing that I would want to, and, and you know, George R. R. Martin is obviously a better writer than I am, so you <laughs> probably think of a way that, that this would be creative. But, like, you know, my concern would be, would this be too complicated? That, like, yeah, you got be. the train, and then there's an attack on the train, and then there's also an attack by a wolf. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, oh, and then wolves. So I don't know. I, you know, I could, I could see it happening. I could also see it where it's just an attack on the train and then that sets up the idea that because i think you know you're absolutely right in terms of saying you know the prologue chapters set up these themes and these ideas that are explored through through the rest of the book totally totally correct i think no matter what happens part of the theme that's going to be set up is that this is the book where you know the the settling of old scores the the vengeance for things that came before i think we're going to see a lot of that we're already seeing a lot of it Mm -hmm. and we're going to see more of it through each POVs. So seeing kind of this, you know, and now we're getting sort of a retribution directly for the Red Wedding nicely sets up if there's going to be, you know, bigger, again, Red Wedding 2.0 or whatever it's going to be in the Riverlands. We've got that with Targaryen, you know, restoration, so to speak, (laughs) in King's Landing and the Stark restoration in Winterfell and, and a lot of, and a lot of old things. So whether or not the wolves are involved, I think the wolves will be involved somehow in this book. If it's in the prologue, if it's in a different POV, I don't know, but somewhere there will be wolves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think about, like, uh, here's a, a question from Patreon, uh, patron screenwriter Catherine Van Pelt brought up an interesting possibility. We've sort of talked about the possibility that the Blackfish will hook up with the Brotherhood. But what if he doesn't? What if he's operating independently with just 
his own men that he's able to recruit from the countryside, and they're not connected. That's another possibility of like two different factions operating in concert here, or not in concert, and they end up with lots of chaos, right? They, they end up attacking this, this train at the same time. Like the, the ambush spot is, is a good ambush spot, so they both pick the same place, which could be, uh, which leads to p- some of the same potentials that you laid out, like some of the, the people they're trying to rescue actually getting killed or being killed by, by Forley Prester because it's part of his orders. That could make this, this, this level of confusion could certainly cause Sir Forley to just be like, no taking chances, just got to do got to push the panic button here, you know, got to push the eject button. <laughs> Mass amounts of chaos, whether there's wolves involved or not, would that's the kind of situation where you could definitely see people getting shot by accident, people killing their friends by accident, just panic, mass chaos. Yeah. Which, which also makes it extremely hard to predict if it's even what's going to happen. But we know some kind of thing is going to happen. <laughs> we know this group is in big trouble. Uh, that part of the prediction seems like the safest thing. Who's coming for them? Well, we named three different possibilities, all of whom are somewhat related. And we've even po- talked through the possibility of multiple of them coming at the same time. We haven't posited all three. Okay, let's say Blackfish has his own group, the Brotherhood have their own group, and the Wolves. All three attack this party at the same time. Now, that I, that's a bit much even for me. But, <laughs> but, but what you're saying about how the party, there's no news of this, has reached King's Landing. Mm. That's part of why the wolf pack is an interesting possibility to add to this is that that is wolves are an element that I could see being responsible for no one getting out alive. Because if, if people can run away, 100%. wolves are what wolves can chase people down better than other people can. Right. No, I, I 100% agree with that. And it could be. And again, it's, it's hard because we don't know what the timing of this yeah. is relative to anything else um and it's not like Dr. Martin is always the best with timing so but it is a very fair point that even if the wolves don't attack the train directly the fact that there is an enormous wolf pack this is what we see you know we even saw this with you know Arya chasing down some of the bloody mummers as as Nymeria and and the rest of the wolves is that individual bands are not going to do very well against against a lot of very hungry, very angry wolves. Yeah, and you're right. Like, that's a very important point to keep in mind. The wolves are drawn towards these groups of people. Like, that is well-established. Nymeria, like, normal wolves, they keep their distance. This wolf pack is aggressive. They're picking at the edges. They're looking for stragglers. They're attacking horses. So the idea that they would be drawn to a large army makes total sense because armies leave bits of food. I mean, it's the whole concept of how humanity and dogs got together in the first place. Dogs would hang out with humans because humans would leave parts of the animal uneaten and dogs would be like, I'll take that. And a friendship developed. A friendship for the ages. Yeah, so that's the same basic concept here. Wolves hanging around people, dogs hanging around where people are because they know there's going to be food. In this case, there's going to be bodies. There's going to be corpses, lots of blood. So People as food. Yes, it's both. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All right, so people as food, of course, that's also a big topic for the winds of winter, cannibalism, starvation, something that the armies in the north are already facing, which is a good segue for us to talk about the Asha Fragment. The Asha Fragment. Uh, It is, uh, for those who aren't super aware of what this is, several years ago, George gave like an interview and he had a picture taken with him in, in front of his actual work computer while he was apparently actually working because there was a page of the Winds of Winter on screen on his 
Bank Street writer or Word Perfect, whatever it is, is old computer. It's not connected to the internet. Smart call, by the way. Don't keep that thing on the internet. No one can steal it. No viruses. You just can't make a mistake. <laughs> yeah, and honestly, sometimes when we're typing our episodes and stuff like that, and we get the little lines to correct us, George doesn't have to deal with that. Yeah, that's true. Just he doesn't like he doesn't like autocorrect. He's like, no, I'm like, it would get frustrating when you're writing a fantasy series with words like Relore and Targaryen. It's like, nope, that's the word. Nope, don't try to correct that. Nope, nope, nope. Those are real words. Basically, it was like a a zoom, an enhance type situation where. <laughs> people were looking at that screen like it was an actual screenshot a different manner of speaking uh it was really tempting to play mad libs with this because there's words we could no one could ever make out but there's too many blanks in a row so we i I considered that but let's read what we have do you want to read it Shay? brackets daughter of the lord reaper of pike asha thought as she took a Bracket of at the land. <laughs> the leader of the enemy wore silvered plate and mail inlaid with the detail of lapis lazuli. <laughs> the brackets crest of his the helmet slash war helm was tall question mark fashioned in the shape of the twin towers of House Fred. Before him rode three banner bearers one bore the stag and lion standard of King Tommen, another the twin towers of House Frey. The third brandished a bloody head impaled upon the point of a tall spear. An old man's head it was, white-bearded and one-eyed. The spear was, like, I'm going to fill this one with rubber. The spear, the, the was, spear rubber. was rubber with a pale wood, <laughs> almost white. It says blank along its upper shaft had blank, dark, and red. Bouncy. Bouncy? it's rubber, yeah. Okay. <laughs> A bouncy werewood spear. Okay. <laughs> Crow food umber, Asha knew. The old Northman had fought to his death, it seemed. Perhaps the foe had thought the sight of the severed head would take the heart of the... They rush together like a lot of question marks in question here. Marks if you could see me, you would see that I have a lot of big gestures. Yeah, she, she's gesturing <laughs> like this, like <laughs> spaces. There's blanks here. Imagine, imagine, use your imagination. So, I, of course, I'm wearing my It's Always Sunny Fight Milk shirt, which gives you the power of a crow. So uh, it was kind of an honor of Crow Food Umber and his death. You know, also to shout out to our good friend, Amanda, Crow Food's daughter. She'll carry on his legacy. <laughs> uh, we did that episode with her on Giants, and we've got more coming in the future. So yeah, Crow Food Umber dead. That's pretty clear. Um, we barely knew ye Crow Food, but he did live a long life. Uh, he wasn't a young man. Uh, I guess, you know, this was foreshadowed. Uh, kind of obliquely, kind of indirectly like George likes to do, kind of in a way that doesn't always look like foreshadowing, but when you see it enough times, you start to every, every sentence like this starts to look like foreshadowing when you read Song of Ice and Fire enough times because he does it enough that it might mean it. Um, here's the line back in A Dance with Dragons. John was not surprised. If it comes to swords, see where Hother's banner flies and put Moors on the other end of the line. The giant slayer disagreed. You would make his grace look weak. I say, show our strength. 
burn last hearth to the ground and ride to war with Crowfood's head mounted on a spear as a lesson to the next lord who presumes to offer half his homage. So this is, of course, uh, Godry the Giant Slayer saying in response to finding out that Morzumber is on his side, but Hother is not. Yeah, but only if he won't fight Umber. You know, it has conditions. Y'all probably remember that. So, well, ride to war with Crowfoot's head mounted on a spear. Well, Stannis didn't do that, but uh, obviously Hostein Frey has. So, quick question. Does this mean we will also see Bur- uh, Last Hearth burned to the ground? Is the second half of this going to come true as well? Uh, we saw weird things at Last Hearth in the show with that the spiral and the, the killing of that young Umber boy. And I don't know if that was just their much off-the-field version of, of what George told them. They're, they just had to go in some weird other direction, but they still included Last Hearth because George did. I don't know. What do, you, do you have any thoughts on the future of the Umbers and Last Hearth? I don't particularly see Last Hearth as being particularly important. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, maybe only in the sense that, you know, when the wall comes down, because that's a when, not an if. You know, Last Hearth is the first major northern castle that's probably going to be hit. So... Yeah. I wouldn't say that anyone at last hearth has a really, you know, great odds at this point. <laughs> but I wouldn't take it any farther than than that. I don't think there's any deeper meaning to to last hearth. Okay. And I, I do wonder how Hother will react. Like Hother supposedly was fighting for the Boltons, but is he mad now that they killed his brother or was he expecting that because he as he is on the other side of him, but we also know that they probably had an arrangement so that they would one of them would be on the winning side. I wonder if his reaction will be important or if he's just going to keep doing what he's doing because he's kind of stuck anyway. It's not like he can, you know, until someone beats the Boltons, he's kind of, well, what's he going to do? I mean, maybe he could turn on them too. Uh, one thing that kind of gives me a, an awkward feeling is thinking about what happened to uh, Moore's, I would say, men, but they were his green boys. Uh, if if Moore's mm. was killed, what happened to those dudes, those little guys? I hope they got away, but that doesn't bode well for them. Um, no, I I don't think they got away. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. And and the thing is, there he had what like a handful of of green boys, which you know, good for digging digging pits. Not so good for standing up to you know five hundred armored mounted Frank. <laughs> there's 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 just not really a way to win there. Yeah. Um, and they may have known that. You know, Moore's may have said, look we're all going to die here. So we're either going to die fighting the Boltons or, or not, you know, are, are you, are you here or are you out? So uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think they escaped. Hope they did, but uh, yeah, doesn't, doesn't seem great odds for them. It's, it's, it's an interestingly similar question to what we were just talking about with the prologue options. And did anyone escape? Is that why news hasn't reached King's Landing? And so it's kind of a similar question. Um, of course, in this case, it's it maybe like if one of the green boys escaped, he could, run, you know, maybe run to Stannis and warn them that they're, they're on the march now or something like that. That's one scenario that occurred to me. Maybe Moore's even ordered one of them to do that once he saw that their position was compromised or something like that. Um, run, go tell Stannis, you know, <laughs> something like that. The leader of the enemy, that should be Sir Hostine, as we've said. He is a.k.a. Sir Stupid. Interestingly, something I hadn't noticed before, his wife's, his son's wife is a Royce. We don't know which branch of the Royce family. There's, you know, a couple branches. I don't, it's it's possibly a minor complication if the Vale Knights come north. Well, when the Vale Knights come north, because there's, you know, this marriage clause. It's probably not going to come up because Hostine's probably going to die. But his heir is down at Castle Derry, and Castle Derry's probably in trouble too. 
So yeah, it's just this doesn't look good for the price, does it? Like it's kind of an easy thing to point to, but it's there's digging deep. You find a lot of small examples. It's like there's so many phrases, and there, a lot of them are accounted for in terms of foreshadowing their deaths. Even the even some of these minor ones, like real minor ones. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> but a nickel for every time we said things aren't looking good for the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a look at this as a whole. Obviously, it's a it's only a couple paragraphs. Can't do a whole lot with it, but even this, there's a few things we can tell. And there's some things we can we can read between the lines or read between the blanks that are in the lines in this case. So what is your just overall take on this chapter or this fragment? Well, <laughs> you know, I, I think to start, and I don't know that George R. Martin feels this way, and if he doesn't, more power to him. But like, for me, I feel so embarrassed if I was in the middle of writing something and then somebody started looking at it and started <laughs> analyzing it. I'd be like, this, this isn't fit for human consumption yet. Don't look at it. It's not It's not ready. Yet. We are greedy um, and thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the problem with this is that because, you know, he didn't release it and he didn't read it at a convention, he, you know, not even acknowledge that it really exists. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It's, this could be all deleted. This yeah. could make it not make it into the story at all. Right. He could. I've deleted paragraphs that I've written. You know, whole paragraphs. I'm sure you're exactly the same. So oh, yeah. he could have started writing this. And I hate everything I've written and get rid of it. In which case, you know, this is all kind of moot. Now, do I necessarily think that these details won't come in anyway? No, I, I do think that these will come in. But it's it is inherently hard harder to speculate on this because it's something that is so uncertain that it will even be in the book. Yeah. But yeah, like in any could, event, for all we know, it could be Theon watching this instead. Like George, as we saw with the Feast for Crows prologue, George wrote multiple uh, versions of that chapter before he said it on page. He like wrote it, right. wrote it from Molander's point of view. He wrote it from Rosie's point of view. He, so like, there's not as many options here, but as you say, Asha's not the only one. You know, I have only one thing that I'm not in doubt of. What's that? It's that that spear will be rubber. <laughs> That Weirwood spear is really cool. And if you it turns heard out it to here be first. Yeah, well, right, rubber comes from trees. I mean, not not werewoods that we know of, but hey, we don't know that much about um, <laughs> Secret rubber package. No, um, but I think there are kind of two, you know, because this is so short, there's really kind of two major takeaways and then a couple of things to point out of what isn't talked about here. Yeah. So the two kind of major takeaways are number one, we've got Asha as a at least partial POV for this battle. Yeah. Is that surprising to anyone? I, I can't imagine. They're, it's just Asha and Theon who are physically there as <laughs> characters. So you had a 50-50 shot of guessing, and it may be both of them in, in, in which case. So not particularly surprising that Asha is a POV for this battle. And then the other reveal is what you were talking about with Moore's Umber being dead. Again, is this surprising? I don't particularly think so. The pink letter, if we are accepting it as mostly true or based on things that Ramsey believes to be true, which I think is the most reasonable reading, then Ramsey explicitly said, you know, I've got your friend, I've got your false king's friends on the heads of winter uh, heads on the walls of Winterfell. Yeah, yeah here we go. Here we go. Here's, here's a head <laughs> that you one. can put on the wall of Winterfell. <laughs> they knew they Moors was a Bolton enemy. They've got him. Yeah, that makes sense. And Moors may not have even expected to live. You know, he's an old man. He's an old man in the north. This is a good death for him. You know, it's better to better to die in battle against an enemy of the Starks than, you know, die alone in the snow sort of thing. Yeah. But I think important to point out is is what what we can't speculate on because of the shortness and the uh, lack of detail from this chapter, which is, you know, number one, 
where is Asha physically? <laughs> yeah, how is she? Where, seen, where is, is she in the tower? Like, yeah, is, what's going on here? Is she in the battle? Is she on the flanks of the battle in the reserve? Is she in the tower? Who's to say? Uh, she's clearly close enough to see it, but that could be virtually anywhere in this area. And that goes for her Ironborn men, too. We don't know where they are, either. Yeah. They could be with her. They could be in the battle. They could be back on the going to the Iron Islands. Who knows? <laughs> so we also don't know what happened to Asha's suggestion of Stannis to execute Theon. The Good point. Theon chapter ends with Asha suggesting that. The ravens take up the words, you know, Tree and Theon. Theon says, ah, yes, they know my name. And that's where it ends. We don't actually see that Stannis accepts this or says yes or does anything. So... Who's to say? We could have a Theon chapter in the middle where Stannis executes him or tries to execute him. We could have an Asha chapter before this where Stannis tries to execute or execute Theon. Or he could say, "Hmm, no, I'm not going to do that. And we could move right on to the battle. (laughs) There's no way to tell what happened between the end of the Theon chapter and the beginning of this battle other than probably something. but, But who's to say? And then we don't know what the actual setup of this battle is. And that kind of gets into theories about the Battle of Ice, which is clearly Hostine's men are fighting somebody, but we don't actually know where Stannis has positioned his men. And because we don't know where Asha is, we don't know what vantage point she's looking at. Is she looking at the whole lake? Is she looking at part of it? Is she looking at none of it? Yeah. I don't know. So that really kind of uh, leaves open the possibility, I guess is the best way to put it, for how Stannis has positioned his men, what his strategy is for this particular battle. Certainly the trap, whatever it is, we're still under the assumption that it's an ice-like thing, hasn't been sprung yet. Certainly that is, and and whatever, and if that's the case, he has allowed his troops to engage with them, which is interesting because he doesn't want his own troops to fall in the ice. So there's definitely uh, some nuance to the strategy or possibly something's gone wrong or who knows. Like you said, there's just no way to know, but it does. It is fun to point out uh, a lot of the different possibilities to kind of give us an idea of what is out there. And also, it'll be even more fun if we name a whole bunch of possibilities and comes out that it's none of them. <laughs> that'll be almost, in some ways that'll be even more surprising because we'll be like, oh, I think we have we've nailed down a lot of possibilities. And oh, well, I didn't think of that, <laughs> you know. And then boom. And of course, with George, there's going to be a lot of that. There's going to be a lot of oh, huh, didn't think of that. As much as we've thought of. We should never uh, tell ourselves that we've thought of nearly all of it. Not even close. Not even close. So yeah, that's a really excellent point about where Asha is physically and not knowing what happened after the end of that chapter. For all we know, there's a chapter in between the two. Probably not because we know the men are on the march towards them. We know all these other things. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of time left in between this chapter and the end of Theon's chapter, but a lot can happen in a few hours too. So a lot of what this sets up, of course, is the result of this battle. We're still kind of operating under the assumption that Stannis will win, even if he doesn't. Uh, but more so, if he does, uh, it sets up the stark convergence on Winterfell. It's very interesting how every Stark child, uh, teenager slash child, except the one who's already been king, is headed back to Winterfell, all of whom are candidates to become Lord of Winterfell, Lady of Winterfell, or perhaps even King of the North, depending on a couple different scenarios, depending on who's backing them, because that's part of all this is it's not just the candidate, it's who's behind them. Uh, Obviously, in Sansa's case, she's got a very powerful backer who is completely untrustworthy, 
Wyman, uh, da- Rickon has a very powerful backer who is a lot more, tr- well, who's vastly more trustworthy, but also pr- quite possibly going to be dead before Rickon even gets there. I, you know, I don't know what, why, what's going to happen with Wyman, but he's not the healthiest guy, and he was just cut open in, in the neck area, which also is, uh, you know, the neck is a vital area, I guess you all probably know. <laughs> you need that to live. You do need that to live. <laughs> Yes, necks are important for human beings and and most living creatures, really. Uh, even though Hostine apparently doesn't have one, he's just all his head sits directly on his shoulders. But uh, and then of course John, we tried to John Rob's will. Stannis Prior offered him this, and then so. But the real trick, of course, is like the order. We can't we can't figure out what order it's going to happen. But still, there's some things we can figure out. And you've put a lot of thought into this. I think you have a lot of great ideas. Obviously, we we have no idea what's really going to happen, but it. it it's fun to suss these things out, turn them over in our minds and see what comes up. So take it away. Tell, tell us what you think about this situation, this vast, confusing, but very fun and uh, interesting succession situation. It is very interesting to me because, you know, you like you said, all of the Starks are converging on Winterfell. And the, the interesting part of that is that none of the plots that are aiming to restore a Stark to Winterfell are aware of any of the other right? plots of restoring <laughs> Starks to Winterfell. So you know, cool. <laughs> they they all think that they're operating with the last best Stark. You know, Stannis thinks that he's got Arya. Obviously, he doesn't. But he doesn't know that Wyman thinks that he has the last legitimate son of uh, Ned and Catelyn. Wyman doesn't know that <laughs> Galbert Glover and Mage Mormont were witness to Rob's will naming an heir. Mage Mormont and Galbert Glover don't know that Littlefinger has the last, <laughs> most ver- most recently verifiable legitimate child of Ned and Catelyn in- planning to install her. So all of these different plots are happening, none of which are aware of the existence of the others. And that becomes a really interesting question when everyone is converging on Winterfell what are they all going to think of everyone else converging on Winterfell? This is really going to be sort of a, a Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man meme oh, yeah. where you've got all of these parties saying, wait a minute, I thought I had the last Stark. I thought I had the last Stark. I thought I had the last Stark. We've gone from a situation of no Stark heirs to a surplus of Stark heirs. And the other interesting thing about this is that there is no one candidate that everyone would probably agree on. Put aside the fact that everyone else has, you know, personal ambitions and, and motivations in terms of, you know, who they want to see seated in Winterfell, there is no one candidate that mm-hmm. everyone could agree upon and say, yeah, they, they are the, the rightful heir. You take someone like John. What does John have going for him? Well, John is was raised in Winterfell. He's a son of the former lord. He looks like Ned, which is a really, really big deal. Yeah. Um, he's an adult, so he can take power immediately. Mm. And he was legitimated by by Rob's will and and named heir. However, John is bastardborn. Again, he was legitimated, but it is but it is a social. Um, it is a a negative social. Um, yeah, they still remember that he's a bastard. The, the, yeah. This is a memory. He was also a member of the Night's Watch, and I'm. I'm willing to bet that none of the precedents of removing someone from the Night's Watch involve, hey, I was dead and now I'm not. <laughs> yeah, people are going to side-eye that for sure. They're going to be like, what do you mean you were dead? I don't even believe that. Like, what? <laughs> and also, John was named heir by a will that was based on a false 
premise, which was that Bran and Rickon were yes. dead. Yes. Is a will still enforceable if it's if it's based on a false premise? I don't know. <laughs> well, we have Nina here to help, but we also need to get we also need to get Learned Hands yeah, podcast. This is, this is a full, we need all the legal team. <laughs> we'll do to the assemble. all lawyers. Yeah, we yeah. need the full we'll legal squad. That. Westerosi legal squad. Get on that. <laughs> um, so, so there's, so there's John. Then you have someone like Sansa. Well, Sansa's legitimate. She's the oldest legitimate child of Ned and Catelyn, and that's, and that's a big deal. She's also mentioned this. She's the most recently verifiable Stark child. Every that was the last child that everyone knew where she was and who she was. Everyone knew up to the Purple Wedding where Sansa Stark was, but Sansa is, uh, and she is almost an adult, so she can almost take power immediately. But Sansa is a girl. And uh, patriarchy is going to patriarchy, mm. especially in a castle where and a family where there has literally never been a ruling woman. Mm. And they've skipped over uh, girls to rule in favor of male heirs, including one named Sansa. <laughs> yeah, not um, that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> not that long ago, relatively speaking. And Sansa will probably, I think, be married to Harold Harding slash maybe Harold Aaron at that point. So there may be a sense in which he's viewed as a foreigner. You know, yeah. you're married to a veilman. You're bringing a foreign army. You're not, you're not Lady Stark. You're Lady Aaron or Lady Harding, however, you know, he chooses. And she looks wolf. like a Tully. Yeah, yeah. And doesn't. And she, and she looks like a Tully. doesn't which have is a wolf. That, you're right to point that out too. That's a really good point. Also does not have a wolf. Mm. And she's the only Stark kid who doesn't at this point. Yeah. So that works against her as a, a, identifying as a Stark. Arya. Well, Arya is, again, legitimate, and she has the bonus of having that Stark look. So she looks the most, you know, of all of legitimate kids, she's the only one that has that look, that can say, look, I look like a Stark. And because Arya is, you know, 11 now, she is almost of what George R. R. Martin would consider a marriageable <laughs> age. <laughs> I, I'm putting that in heavy air quotes because no one in the world would consider an 11-year-old marriageable age. But in, in in this universe, it's not something that is looked over. And Arya is not married. Ramsay married Jane Poole. He did not marry Arya. So there is a sense in which any ambitious Northman can marry Arya and say, I'm going to promote her as Lady of Winterfell and rule through her. Northern children rather than... Tully, northern Aaron children, or northern whatever. children, yeah. good northern blood. It's a good, it's a good, uh, good marketing just uh, concept there for them. <laughs> but at the same time, Arya is is young. Yeah. She is farther away from her majority, and again, she is a girl, and that's something that's going going to to work against her claiming power in in Winterfell. Rickon is a, a legitimate son, and that's something that is very you know important. He's got both legitimacy. And the and the male status that's going to help him, but he's also six, yeah. <laughs> and that that means a ten year regency. Yeah, and regencies, as we you know saw in Fire and Blood, are not are not easy things, and they're not good things. Well, I shouldn't say good; they're not easy things to work with, and they can lead to a lot of political. They're chaos dangerous and, and yeah, instability. Yeah. Yes, and that's not something. Does someone want to trust Wyman Manderley with ten years of power? He won't even live no, ten years, no, probably. <laughs> so you have like a whole like you know, replace um, him. Yeah, so like that's. You're right. That's that's there's a lot of chaos in that potential there. Yeah. And then Bran, no one's really fighting for Bran at this point. Um, it's not clear who knows Bran is alive. Obviously, he met one of the littles in a storm of swords, but A, that was back in a storm of swords, and B, we have no idea if that little told anyone. Yeah. So we would think he did, but, but like he might decide it was a bad idea because then other people could find out. He might be like, Yeah, tell no one. He might be like, Ned didn't even tell Cat about John. It might be kind of like one of those situations. 
Well, and also, again, it was back in a storm of sword. There's no saying that Bran, they would think Bran was still alive uh, if he was just out in the wilderness. But Bran shows up. Well, again, he is legitimate and he is the oldest uh, legitimate male. So that's, and he was regarded as heir to Winterfell during his, his lifetime by, by Rob. So that's an important point. But he is still young and he is disabled in a very ableist society. Bran can ride with a very special horse, with a very special saddle, neither of which he probably still has. He can't fight in a traditional way. He can't lead armies in a traditional way. It's not clear whether or not he can even have children. Maybe, maybe not. It's not clear. But this is something where they might look at him, you know, again, in a very ableist society and say, why should we make him our leader? He can't do any of the things that we expect a Westerosi leader to do. So again, no easy answers here. Not at all. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you're facing a situation. Now, do I think the Stark kids are going to find among themselves? No. Mm. I think that they're just going to be happy to be together. They haven't seen each other since the Game of Thrones. Agreed. They've yeah. all been through hell. They're just going to be happy to be back. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. you know, they might be like each other alive again. They might be like creeped out by each other. Like, Bran, what is going on with you? Or John, like, John, were you really dead? And Arya, did your face just change? <laughs> John, did an eagle try to remove your eyes? Yeah, they're like they're a little worse for wear, but you're right. Bottom line, you're right. They'll be like, but they are going to so be happy, happy to, to be together. together. But their factions are going to say, "No, you as Lord of Winterfell, you as Lady of Winterfell, him as Lord of Winterfell. No, not him. He is not the one we should pick. She is not the one we should pick." So a lot of infighting among them, and I think the the idea will be trying to figure out, hey. Let's all focus here because we've got a lot bigger problems to the north yeah. that we've got. Deciding which one of us gets our butt on the seat of Winterfell. And it's like, we can kind of imagine, again, we we don't want to do too much of this, but if we use the show as a basic guideline, we did get a little of that. We got the little finger tried to put a wedge between Arya and Sansa, and that could be like their micro version of people trying to put the Starks against each other only for it to blow up in their face. And of all the people that, of these people trying to foist the Stark of uh, their candidate, Littlefinger's by far the most shady, right? Like, he's way shadier than Manderly or whoever. I, I don't even need to make that argument. It's pretty straightforward. So he might be the, the key, the most operating behind these, the most aggressive at making moves here, uh, which is, might be why the show just reduced it to just him. But we might also see like a Glover or a man, you know, like other people making moves here. So that's really interesting. It might be that's just the, the microcosm version of people trying to get the Starks to fight with each other. And so the show had them be like, no, Arya and Sansa are not going to fight. They're going to make us think they are, but they're going to unite. And maybe that's just the small version of that. And the book version will have a whole bunch. Instead of just Arya and Sansa, there's, well, whoever else will be there. Maybe Bran, maybe Rickon, maybe, maybe John also. Who knows? But more than just Sansa and Arya and involved in that part of things. Uh, you also pulled this this great quote from George himself, uh, which I think maybe oh, we yeah. should, let's let's have, <laughs> let's throw that. You want to show you when to read this quote? This is, this is a bit of a lengthy quote, but this is George's direct words on succession. The laws of inheritance in the seven kingdoms are modeled on those in real medieval history, which is to say they were vague, uncodified, subject to varying interpretations and often contradictory. A man's eldest son was his heir. After that, the next eldest son, then the next, etc. Daughters were not considered while there was a living son, except in Dorne, where females had equal right of inheritance according to age. After the sons, most would say that the eldest daughter is next in line. 
but there might be an argument from the dead man's brothers, say. Does a male sibling or a female child take precedence? Each side has a claim. What if there are no children, only grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Is precedence or proximity the more important principle? Do bastards have any rights? What about bastards who have been legitimized? Do they go in at the end after the trueborn kids or according to birth order? What about widows? And what about the will of the deceased? Can a lord disinherit one son and name a younger son as heir or even a bastard? There are no clear-cut answers, either in Westeros or in real medieval history. Things were often decided on a case-by-case basis. A case might set a precedent for later cases, but as often as not, the precedents conflicted as much as the claims. Yeah, I mean, that, like a lot of the examples that Ashay I just read from that SSM that, that Nina grabbed are directly describing the situation here. He even says, do bastards? What about what order the bastards come? What about the will of the deceased. The yeah, it's like these are just like... By the way, also, that was even longer. I cut oh, wow. that down because he started going into the war, the Hundred Years War. And oh. I, I have to stop this somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> even George's anecdotes are a little extra. That's cool. Yeah, but it does describe it really well. Just describe not only the... We, we, we broke down all the options within the story, but this just breaks down how it tends to work in any situation with these medieval or middle age or whatever uh, succession issues. And it just, a lot of times it just comes down to who's got more swords, (laughs) which I I don't think that will be what plays out here though. They're not, like we said, they're not all just going to fight each other. So that's, that's, it's not going to be that as often as it is elsewhere. Okay. We've got a few questions from y'all. Some sent ahead, some sent uh, during the episode. Let's, let's get into that. All right. First of all, this is a little bit of a digression, but we were talking about the idea of Sansa as skin changer. So I wanted to bring up a post that I had read a long time ago that I found, and I can link in the chat, from Nobody Suspects the Butterfly. Oh, who, shout out to her, yeah. Yeah, she always has fantastic stuff. Great resource on Tumblr.com. So she basically talks about how Sansa bonds with the old blind dog the first time that she does so with any animal and she does so very quickly. It's the only animal that she's really had time with Mm. since Lady died. And the old blind dog defends her. Like, that's how closely they have bonded. Interesting, But then they're separated. We get in Varamyr's chapter, he thinks about how dogs are easy to skin change. Sure, maybe. I think he says they're the easiest. Yeah, he says they're like an old boot, like an easy boot to put on. Then here's another little section where Sansa, when thinking about Flying, she thinks, a falcon soared above the frozen waterfall, blue wings spread wide against the morning sky. Would that I had wings as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have the imagery from earlier that we've brought up a lot of times about her being a wolf with big leather wings like a bat. There's a lot of symbolism there that has to do with other things. But regardless, it's related. Went his his, uh, blood. Yeah, that's a whole other thing. But it's it's a quote to take note of. And then we have Bran thinking, I'd tell him I could fly, but he wouldn't believe, so I'd have to show him. I bet that he could learn to fly too. Him and Arya and Sansa, even baby Rickon and Jon Snow. We could all be ravens and live in Maester Lewin's rookery. Uh-huh. And mm. then we have um, the last thing I'll bring up here, which is from Hagen, 
In Baramir's chapter, he says, I know skin changers who've tried hawks, owls, ravens. Even in their own skins, they sit moony, staring up at the bloody blue, which Bran actually does have a little bit of that. Like, he has more control, but he has gotten some of that uh, mooniness, I think. Yeah, and he's Um, drawn to the ravens from the beginning. Yeah, and so, like, we'd like to think that Starks would be a little more powerful and have more control, but it is maybe a caution that Sansa might uh, get too into the escapism of it all, I suppose. Well anyway, said. there's my pitch for her having skin changer abilities. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that she has those abilities. I just don't know that she'll bond with anyone. Yeah, maybe it's just something, mm. some minor thing. Like yeah, but I, I think it's very possible that she will like skin change into a bird and see something really important, but not really, it never goes anywhere from there. Another possibility is just that how it creates more of a bond between them because we see Hagen and Horak and they can, they can sense each other. Skin changers yeah. can sense each other's abilities, so that might be something that comes up is that they, they sense it within each other. Like, Sansa gets around her family, and she's like, what is this weird aura I'm sensing from all of you? And they're like, hey, you have it too. <laughs> <laughs> Good question by AJ Borkar here. Says, would other northern houses bring up Sansa's letter telling Rob to surrender and that she was married to Tyrion? Yeah, that's a good, like, propaganda weapon to use against her. She was forced to write that letter by... Yeah, I'm not sure about the letter because I'm not sure how many of them actually know that that happened. Okay. But being married to Tyrion, I, I would say... Um, They'll use that. You know, yeah. the, <laughs> the association with the Lannisters, it's not something that Sansa obviously desired, um, yeah. but it's something that was very publicly known and it's something that uh, Stannis was willing to use in his pitch to John to say, what do you want Lady Lannister to, to rule Winterfell? So it's something that could very much be used against Sansa uh, in terms of saying, hey, you shouldn't be... Lady of Winterfell. Remember, you were associated with Lannister sort of thing. Mm, okay, yeah. Max L says, it seems like there's two simultaneous succession crises, one for the Targaryens, one between Fagon and Danny, and the other for the Starks in the North. Absolutely, there's a succession of ice and a succession of fire. It's super cool the way George is having these things come together, fighting mm-hmm. over the throne in the North, which is super important to getting everyone together on the same page, to stopping the real enemy, and then in the South, you got a similar situation where the real enemy is shaping up to be Euron and they're better off facing down him and maybe Cersei uh, rather than fighting them amongst each other. So yeah, it's really cool. George is, he's really good with these parallel. He loves to parallel and he is really good at it. He also says, I feel like the fact that the Hound actually thought his brother was dead is going to be real important. Like when he hears Gregor isn't actually dead, that could bring him out. Okay, yeah, that's a fair point. Like he could, maybe we don't need an epilogue prologue situation to see it. We could just, he came, comes out because of Gregor and not because the Quiet Isle was, was destroyed. Like that would, you would have to get rid of the Quiet Isle being destroyed. Like, I don't think the Quiet Isle gets destroyed off page with him at it, but if we just don't have that part, which is possible. Yeah. I'm less con- convinced about the Gregor part because I, I think Sanders more or less moved past that at this point. Mm. But I, I do think that there's a way in which Sandor can emerge uh, without there needing to be a lot of fanfare. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, terms. again, you're right. Like this is like we shouldn't, we, we, we never forget George's creativity as the as the thing that <laughs> is like, oh, we couldn't think of a way. Well, it doesn't mean he can't. <laughs> Guinevere Greenstones asks, "What do you think about the way Thea, Stannis has Theon hanging so close to him? Not just that keeping him close by is one thing, but also that he's making him suffer. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder about that. I, I, you and I talk about this offline. You made the point that. Well, you can't have Theon elsewhere. You can't have a, a Rickard Karstark situation where 
Someone right. just There's kills too many Theon. people that want to kill yeah. Theon that Stannis is probably practical enough to realize the only way I can make sure that Theon is alive as long as I want him to is to keep him physically under my, mm. my thumb, sort of, yeah. so to speak. So um, I think that makes sense. And also, Stannis doesn't have a lot of room in the Watchtower. So there's not, <laughs> there's not a, a surplus of places to put Theon, but I think that's in his mind. Yeah. Um, but no, Stannis... Stannis is always a man who says, look, I'm not going to wipe out a, a bad act with a good or a good act with a bad. In his mind, Theon has committed a lot of crimes. Theon has committed crimes, not entirely the yeah. same crime that Stannis <laughs> thinks he has, but um, he certainly has committed crimes and he's going to be punished for them. And Stannis isn't going to say, just because you brought me the girl I think is Arya, I'm going to let you go free. I'm going to take you in chains and I'm going to, and I'm going to put you until I decide what to do with you. So, so to speak. So that's very uh, typical, you know, very much on the road Stannis. Yeah. I'm not surprised by that at all. And she also wants to know if, if being in the North is influencing his decision-making, I'd say absolutely. Like he is definitely playing a bit to the Northern Lords sensibilities. And this is an example of that. Yes. It's, it's practical. As Nina says, there's not a lot of other places to keep him. Most importantly, you can't let him, you can't give someone else a chance to murder him uh, in revenge. But also, given that he says, I'm not going to kill him yet, given that he says, I'm going to wait till Winterfell, I need to make use of him, he's got to give the Northerners something. He's like, well, see, I'm, I'm at least torturing him. <laughs> it's like, because they want him dead now. So Stannis is going to delay that. At least he can be like, look, at least he's suffering. Like the guy is in pain. So you're, at least you're getting something of what you want here. It's like a compromise of sorts. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's kind of how I see it. But I, I, I think all this works together. Uh, Miss Man Jones says, do you think Stannis could marry Shireen to Rickon? Hmm. I think it's a possibility. I, I feel the tragic events will prevent such an arrangement from ever happening. But on paper, it, there's some sense to be made of it. Uh, it, it could be. Sure. I, you know? Yeah, I think the timing is, is the biggest issue here. In the, I'm not sure. I'm not sure when Stannis dies, and I'm not sure how Stannis dies. But Stannis is, is going to die, and I'm not sure when Shireen dies, but Shireen is going to die. So I'm not sure if either or both of those events occur before Rickon gets back to Winterfell. If Stannis even sees that Rickon is alive, um, <laughs> I don't. I don't think the t- timing would necessarily work out to do that, and I don't think that Stannis. In his mind, for the moment, Stannis may think, you know, even if that were a possibility, Stannis may think that's kind of unnecessary at this point. You know, if anything, the Starks should be grateful to me for what I've been doing. <laughs> I shouldn't need to win them over with with a marriage sort, sort of thing. I need to save Shireen for, you know, an enemy that I need to win over yeah. as opposed to the Starks that I basically gift-wrapped their home back for them. That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I think there's timing issues. I, I think there may be political issues. And I think that Ultimately, it's a thing that probably won't happen. It yeah. could, but I, but I have my doubts. Like Stannis originally wanted John to marry Val, but of course he didn't even know Rickon was out there. So that's completely like, yeah, like because I would think maybe he would have tried to marry Shireen to, to John, but no, not not under those circumstances. So, yeah, I think I lean with you there. Like it's a it's a worthwhile idea, but probably not. Yeah. Curtis Frank says, "Do you think that we'll have more John chapters? We've never had an undead reanimated POV." Uh, if George wants to maintain mystique, then we can watch John from the outside. I have considered this possibility. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's likely, but I, I gotta keep it in mind as an option. Um, I, I think there's a chance, I mean, but probably not. I think we're gonna. It's certainly an option. I, I don't. I don't feel. I don't feel that we won't have more John chapters. Yeah. I feel pretty confident that that we will. I think that George R. R. Martin wants to explore the. He's been. 
he's been pretty straightforward anytime someone has brought up the idea of John staying dead as being, yeah, that's, that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, he's like, so you think so, do you? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's been pretty explicit about that. So the idea that he's going to keep, you know, keep John out of the loop, I don't think so. I think John is too much of a central apocalyptic figure for him to fall back as a POV. Um, I think we will return to him. How we return, I don't know. I don't know if we see him inside Ghost. I don't know if we see him as he's being resurrected or if we only return to him when he's back fully human. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, maybe I, I don't know. Passes but... And he's more adjusted than like you can go back into his brain and feel like adjusted John rather than recently dead John. Yeah. I could see something like that. I mean, we have precedent for a man who's died, who's gone into his wolf and continued to be a POV. So <laughs> it's it's not it's not out of the realm of possibility to continue to do that. <laughs> uh, Lord Dom Snow says, "Do you think we will see where the others live?" You know, I used to think that. I'm I'm less up on that possibility. It's interesting because I thought one, like one of the things about John's death is that it enables him to go to places that humans can't go potentially, like places that are too mm. cold for a living being. Uh, and I've I've toyed with that idea is like John could go to the land, the heart of always winter, to the land of always winter because he's undead uh, and he, the cold wouldn't get him. Mm. So it's possible, but like that sounds difficult. Uh, I think we'll see it more, more like through, through brands visions or something rather than face to face. I think it'll be destroyed in an endgame scenario. Like the ul- the ultimate endgame is the destruction of the heart of winter, okay. which I, I assume is that's where the others are. From. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, all of this is very highly speculative. Um, are the others even? They're they're from the know. stomach of winter. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, supposing that the heart of winter is where the others are from, then I think the end game is that. John, Daenerys, Tyrion destroy this and destroy themselves in the process mm. of, you know, we have to do this, like we have to destroy this to, to save the world sort of thing, okay. uh, sort of self-sacrifice so that everyone else can be saved. That's how I feel about it. I felt that way for a little bit. Haven't given up on that yet, <laughs> but we'll see where the story yeah, goes. Yeah. <laughs> Derek Dane asks, is it possible that Theon via sacrifice could be the life that brings John back? Well, you can't say no for sure. But I don't think we need a life to bring John back. Beric didn't need death to come back. It was just the kiss of Relore. I mean, there was no explicit death after Sandor killed him. I mean, there was people dying all around him the other times he was killed because there was war and, you know, ambushes and all, all this other stuff. But yeah, I, I remain unconvinced that it's it works quite like that. Uh, so yeah, they're a, quite a while from each other, too. Yeah. The, the, the timing and, and location the timing and location just doesn't quite work out for me and i feel like the intentionality has to be there too yeah. something that i've always you know thought about in terms of sacrifice and a song of ice and fire is that i feel like you have to know that you're part of a sacrifice or you're making a sacrifice or otherwise like when, yeah. like somebody somewhere dies and then you've like yeah, so, and it also seems to operate, you know, Reloric Resurrection, to the extent that, limited extent that we've seen it, seems to operate, for lack of a better term, in, in energy and how much energy you need to expound to, to raise someone. So, mm. Beric was raised, he was very recently dead. And so, all Thoros, all Thoros had to do was, you know, do this sort of Reloric right around him and bring him back. Versus Catelyn, who had been three days dead in the river, 
and Barak had already died six times. Yeah. So the combination of those, I think, was caused Barak's death. Like that was the last of the energy that he had to do that. Yeah. So it, it may just be that if there's an if Melisandre has enough energy to do this, then she may not need a sacrifice. Yeah. Doesn't mean that she couldn't, because God knows Melisandre's trigger happy when it comes to human <laughs> sacrifice. But it doesn't mean I, I don't think that it's necessary either. Yeah, there's a lot of ancient traditions, like real world and fantasy traditions where like people believe that a lot of people dying at once causes stuff to happen. There's a lot of like cults that all killed themselves. And you know, they, they drink the Kool-Aid. Jim Jones, that was a perfect example of that where they thought they were creating some mystical energy by doing it all at once or whatever. Uh, so you're, and then Robert uh, in Deep Geek made that point for maybe what Euron is doing with all these priests and this blood and the sea and all that. Maybe there's some sort of creating a mass death thing. And now, now he's open to the possibility that it's just for show to make it look like he did magic, which is something you always got to consider with Euron and Melisandre. So that, that is very interesting. So I, we'll put that one on the shelf. I don't know. I, I would say no, but I'm not going to say slam dunk no, because we just don't know how this works. Tommy Pappas says, last week, Jason and Aziz theorized how and where Theon would die. Much of that speculation was centered around Theon as an archer. My mind immediately jumped to Moat Kaelin. What are, you, what are thoughts on that as an option allowing survivors from the north fleeing White Walkers by heading south to narrowly escape? Yeah, if the war with the others gets so bad that they have to flee the north, Moat Kaelin is interesting. Of course, Moat Kaelin is defensible the other way. It, would, might, it might mean getting back into the north is difficult later. But of course, if there's no others there, I guess it won't matter. But I, I'm just curious if we'll ever see Moat Kaelin again in general. I'm not sure that it, there's a, a strong reason for us to go back there. I want to. Yeah. But I don't I don't see the war with the others. I, I know different people have different ideas about where it's going to end, physically speaking. Uh, I, I do kind of center on Winterfell. I think that that's sort of the battleground and, and, the, and the end goal. Um, so I don't think we'll go much farther south than Winterfell, which is not to say that anywhere farther south is not having its own problems. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of this particular... So I don't really see a reason to go back to Mo Caitlin. Um, There's not much there at Mo Caitlin to, to help out. So yeah. <laughs> it's not a great last stand place. Yeah, if they were coming from the south, that would work really well. That might be a good last stand place. But yeah, that's gonna it's kind of in reverse. So yeah, I'm not sure that would work. But I do, I really hope we go back there. But I can't think of a great reason right now. But we can hope, we can hope. Michael Orfeld says, since Sapphire-Eyed Simeon Star-Eyes witnessed two hellhounds fight at the Night Fort, my guess is Clegane Bowl is going to happen there. Now, well, I have a hard time imagining how the mountain would go all the way to the north like that. Sandor being up there doesn't seem so strange because we saw him go there in the show to help fight the others, and I could see him going to the north to help fight the others. But the mountain going up there, I, I have a hard time seeing the mountain going up there. Mm. yeah and i i don't again like i said i don't don't see a fight happening in in their future i I think sandor has thematically and personally moved moved past that and i i think gregor has suffered his his own hell and continuing to suffer that i don't think it's fun being a necromanced uh corpse so uh i think gregor's got his own problems i think sandor's got his own problems do you think gregor doesn't have his his headaches anymore (laughs) I mean, the best way to get rid of headaches is to get rid of your head. Yeah, exactly. So it might not be as bad as you're thinking, you know? You know what? I didn't consider the possibility that this is helping his migraines. This is is true. 
Yeah, whatever works. We need a little sympathy for Gregor here. Come on, y'all. Like, feel bad for the guy, right? <laughs> no, no, no. Gregor has outsmarted us all. He's figured out how to fix his chronic migraine. Mm-hmm. Clint Williams says, I believe Melisandre's from hard home. Mark my words. Interesting. I, I wonder, but I don't, I wonder how that could be possible. Isn't she has memories of Ashai, but yeah, it I isn't think, explicit that she's from there. Just yeah, that she I think was there when to, she was to get into that, um, what was going on in the chat is people were talking about how long ago people would have come to capture slaves at hard yeah, home. Yeah, definitely well, there's slave taking there. So that, that there has been slave yeah. taking. Oh, yeah. And so that is just where that comes from. Okay. Yeah, it's not, it's it's not, certainly, I, I would probably Along call with foil, things like Melanie being a yeah. known name in Westeros, although that's yeah. more of a new thing we found mm-hmm. out. You know, little, little things like yeah. that. That would be really interesting if she's spanned the globe like that from Ashai to Hardhome. Yeah. <laughs> but she's old enough to and have back. done that. Screw and back. Lomas Longstrider. <laughs> Melisandre. But you, you, you do think that she might, uh, as much as any character can car- compartmentalize things, I do think that at the wall, if Melisandre was from the North, that that might somehow be in her memory. But it's it's easy for yeah. us to say it wouldn't be, but I, I do feel like we would have some hints. Yeah. If if he's had if she has two more, two or three more chapters go by, which she may not even have, but if she does and we still like it still hasn't illuminated where she's from or more her backstory, then yeah, it'll be but the less she doesn't think about the North, the less likely she's from it, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Or the more she doesn't yeah. think about it. I wouldn't be surprised if he were Westerosi. Again, the fact that he's dropping Melanie as a, as a, as a Westerosi name may or may not be significant. Wouldn't be surprised if he brought necessarily from Hardhome. Uh, I, I'm less certain about that, but who's to say? Yeah, like it, it would be interesting. It would make a certain sort of sense if she's Westerosi, but not from like Westeros proper. But yeah, it's still it's mm. it's still kind of there, there's definitely some some more details we'd have to uncover to, to make this more possible. All right, let's see. Another question from Guinevere Greenstones. What do you think about how Tyrion's understanding of Shay has developed or slash is developing? Well, that's a good question. He certainly has changed his thoughts on it. He, he certainly went from hating her to blaming himself for a lot of it, but still having kind of anger issues about it. So he's definitely yeah. changed on it, but I'd say he's, I'd say is developing is what's happening. I think he's kind of swung the pendulum in the opposite direction and mm. probably farther than I think is is fair. Okay. Um, and he may never get to a fair point. And I mean, if you're raised by Tywin Lannister, you're never going to think you're being yeah. raised with a viewpoint that uh, commoners are subhuman anyway. So if he can never get to a fair point, that's a that's pretty good on Tyrion. So, but I think he went from a place of feeling that Shay had betrayed him, which was unfair because yes. it was unfair to expect that Shay loved him. He paid her to be his girlfriend. Yeah. And that should have been all he expected. But now he's kind of swung the opposite way where, well, she was always a whore and always a liar. And I I was stupid to believe her. Yeah. And it's like, well, I mean, you've moved on from thinking that she loved you. So that's progress. But <laughs> you also don't have the sympathy that I think you should have for her. Yes. I mean, Shay was 18. She was a teenage lowborn female sex worker. That's about as low as you get in Westeros yeah. society. Nobody's looking out for Shay. So the fact that Shay is doing anything, Shay has to look out for herself. If someone corners Shay after Tyrion's arrested and says, talk or we're going to kill you, I don't know. I don't feel that bad for Shay talking. Yeah, because... like what, what kind of, how, lo- how loyal is she supposed to be to this guy? Like, yeah, like. Had not been 
paying her for a while. <laughs> he had stopped paying her and continued to expect her to work. And his plan in his mind was to marry her off to someone she barely knew who had no money. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not really feeling she that like uh, she didn't, yeah, he, <laughs> That he's gotten to a fair place. Yeah, he's, he's definitely in a better place than he was, but it's not a good place. Maybe if he keeps following this path, he'll he'll figure some things out. But it's been an ongoing theme with Tyrion is in part because of his parentage, in part because of his incredibly high place in society that he mischaracterizes because of his own shortcomings, no pun intended. He constantly, he doesn't have sympathy or understanding for people who uh, were born poor or born even middle class, really. He, that's something he hasn't fully learned yet. And it's part of what association with Penny is showing him. He's sort of gleaning some of that through his... I'm Proximity to her? I mean, he said cripples, bastards, broken things. He did not say the poor. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The legacy of Tywin Lannister, not the poor. Yeah, Tywin hates the poor more than anything, right? Like, yeah. So, so he's he, that's a big thing for him to break free from. And and being around Danny might help with that because Danny is does have that. Danny absolutely has sympathy and empathy for people who have less. At, partly because she went through some of it herself. Like, she's been chased and, and enslaved and all that. It's part of why she has that perspective. Tyrion's gaining some of that, too, by being... He was a slave. He's been... Had to work major hours. Just his back was killing him. All this stuff. Like, putting in... Put, giving him a different perspective. So that brings us to the next question from Guilty Undertaker. Will Tyrion and Danny uniting make Tyrion Dan better or Danny worse? Or somewhere in between? I figure somewhere in between because that's a good example. Like with the example I just gave, I feel like some of that's going to rub off on Tyrion. Danny's like, if, if you're not on that program, if you're part of Danny's court and you're not on the free the slaves, you know, liberation track, Danny's going to notice that <laughs> and be like, look, this is what we're after. This is this is part of who we are. If you're not part of that, then you're not part of this. So I think Tyrion has to at least be part of somewhat, at least pay lip service to that, if not like mm. fully become bought in. But I do think Tyrion, some of his like revenge and his darker tendencies will also inf influence Danny. I don't think they'll go as far as some people do that she's just going to be a, he's just going to fully use her as an instrument of revenge and destruction. I think some people, yeah, I think, no. I think that pendulum has turned too far in the fandom on like the villainization of Tyrion. People used to think he was one of the best characters. Now, like the, the, the pendulum has turned and looking at some of the actors like, no, he's, he's, he's not such a great guy. But he's not an evil guy either. And I think some people have started to go too far with that. Like, oh, Tyrion's a terrible guy. But no, he's great. Like pretty much all the characters. He's done good. He's done bad. And who knows what's coming? What do you think about this? I gave a long answer there, but I'd love to hear yours. <laughs> um, no, I, I think that, and I think it's important to take into context. You know, Tyrion encountering Daenerys Tyrion has every reason to believe that Daenerys is not going to like him on sight. Why would she? True, true. <laughs> he's, he's the brother of the man who killed her father and the son of the man who murdered Rhaegar's wife or had Rhaegar's wife and children murdered. So um, she's not going to, she has every reason not to like him. So Tyrion needs a way that Daenerys is going to like him and going to find him useful to keep around. What is the only thing that Tyrion can really offer Daenerys at this point? Well, I shouldn't say the only thing, but what's a key thing that Tyrion can offer? The fact that he probably has come to the realization that this Aegon is not, in fact, Aegon Targaryen and, and is someone that's being propped up as Aegon Targaryen. And so I think Tyrion's going to say, look, whoever this is, 
He's trying to steal your birthright. You need to go after him. And by the way, I know who's on his side and I know what they're planning to do. So you want to keep me around because I can tell you things about this guy. Um, And I think that's going to motivate Daenerys. Again, I don't think that makes her like dark or evil. Like, ooh, I'm going to kill the person who's usurping the (laughs) throne that they have no right to anyway. But but encouraging her, you know, to pursue fire and blood energetically which is something that she wasn't willing to do throughout most of the dance with dragons Mm. is you know Tyrion is now going to say look you should go after the people in Volantis you should free those people look at all the people that you can get on your side if you if you tear down the old slave system in Volantis Mm. you know he had those ideas in, in in a dance with dragons now he's going to apply them to Daenerys again do I think that makes Daenerys evil no not in the least bit but something a little more violent, something a little more uh, energetic, something a little more active than what we've seen of Daenerys before. Mm. And I think that Tyrion will eventually encourage Daenerys to go after Aegon. And I think Daenerys will unintentionally blow up King's Landing as, as a result. I don't think Tyrion knows that she's going to blow it up, and I don't think Daenerys knows. But I think as a result of that, that, that will happen. So... Does that answer make any sense? I'm it not does, sure. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> it, it does. It does. And one thing just to add to that, something I hadn't considered that someone brought up elsewhere. I don't remember actually where I saw it, but Tyrion is somewhat aware of, of the wildfire caches that are in King's Landing. He's at least one of the people that discovered one of them uh, or helped discover one of them and had them had it disposed of. So you wonder if people can, if there's any culpability for him, if he doesn't mention that, if there's any sort of like attack on King's Landing that he condones and doesn't mention that, like just something to keep in mind for later. I don't, there's not much we can do with that idea right now. And does he, well, the other question is, does he know they're still there? Because yeah. he used a lot. Right, he might not, does exactly. Does he know he that there's more? <laughs> yeah. Like we believe there's more because there's bound to be because like, well, there's already been two caches found and. It doesn't, would they actually have gotten them all? It, it kind of makes sense that there still would be yeah, some. I, yeah, I feel like Tyrion would be on the same page that we are on right here. Like, hey, if I didn't realize that this was happening this whole time, maybe there's more as yeah. well. Like, it just makes sense. That this wasn't a one-off. Yeah, definitely something to think about. So we don't, we don't know what, what Tyrion, what his conception of all this is, but it was, a, it was a good point to raise. I wish I could remember who raised the point to give them credit, but. Perhaps later. Igor P from YouTube says regarding Tyrion 1, 2, uh, 1 and 2 from TWOW, as well as Danny 10 from Dance with Dragons, uh, a burning horse is also the last thing Theon sees before losing consciousness at Winterfell and the Clash Kings. That's right. Yeah. We, we've seen the burning horse metaphor or symbolism a few times, uh, twice in the short succession there with Tyrion and Danny 10 there um, around Marine and in the Dothraki Sea. But we also saw it, yeah, with Theon at, at the end of Winterfell. I wonder if there's a, some sort of symbol there that I'm missing, but uh, it's just so, it's just an evocative image of a horse on fire running. It's like, yikes. I don't really want to think about that a whole lot, but. <laughs> yeah, I think yikes pretty much sums up how I feel about it. Good observation by Igor there. Uh, Eric Forg says, do Asha, Tyrion, or Cersei lose their tongues? Does Cersei lose a foot to infection from the Walk of Atonement? Now, some of you might wonder, that's a kind of maybe seem like a random question. But I, I think where he's coming from is Jamie lost a body part. Tyrion's lost a body part. Maybe Cersei will too. Kind of rounds out what Tywin's prophecy about it. Not real prophecy. Prophecy in quotes of he didn't want his family to be mocked. And of course, that's happening a lot. But she was already mocked, you know, in the while she walked 
which is, you know, one of his uh, ideas here about a foot infection. She and did of cut course, her foot. She's losing her beauty. Yeah, that's know, true. Which is basically her losing a limb, that's, a part of her. She had her hair shaved, which is... Yeah, she's getting older, you know, and all that, which uh, she's not really old by any means. She, You will still be beautiful. This is not being ageist, but in her mind. Yeah. And in Westerosi society. feels that loss. Yeah. 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 I am worried about Tyrion losing his tongue. I'm kind of down on the possibilities because of how important he is as a talker, but it certainly seems possible. I don't think Cersei will lose her tongue, although... It's possible, too, if she ends up with Euron, and he does that to people. <laughs> so, yeah, she And Lena Headey was certainly missing a bunch of lines in season eight. Like, they, like where, were her, where was her dialogue? She was, she was, it was almost like her tongue was cut out. So, <laughs> Yeah, I've obviously agreed with you in all of our episodes that I am all too afraid of this Tyrion theory, the quiet yeah. lion theory, which... Just It does make a lot of sense. I specifically, one of the things I liked about it was just that Jamie has these interactions with Ilan Payne who cannot speak, which it, it's, it's something for? to me. It, yeah, it is that, notable to me for sure. But, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. What do you think, Nina? Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm less convinced only because I feel like if you're going to have a major, major character you know, lose a major body part. Um, <laughs> well, it's not like they're losing, like, I don't know, the tip of one finger where it's like, oh, that that's really annoying, but it's not really like a thing that's going to change my life necessarily. So if you're having a major character lose a major body part that is majorly going to impact how they interact with this world, there's a sense in which, like, if you do it too much, it kind of becomes a parody of itself. Yeah. <laughs> Every character loses a body part. You get to lose the body part and you get to lose the body part. It's like, it kind of loses the potency of, you know, George R. Martin yeah. took a book and a half to explore how that affected Jamie. He's still exploring it. That's so, yeah. you know, is, is this something that he really wants to devote time to of let's explore how these characters now interact with the world having lost a major body That's a part. big authorial I, I don't challenge. think so. Yeah. There's a lot more that he has to explore with these characters <laughs> that I'm not sure that he really has the time or uh, energy that he that he wants to do. Not to mention, of course, that it's specifically the point of Cersei. Like, Cersei's already so doomed that it's like, oh no, I'm doomed to die and I lost a foot. <laughs> this is just the worst day possible. Well, she needs to definitely stay away from John Connington then because that's something that could lead to a lot of chopped yeah, body yeah, parts Yeah, yeah, that's true. We weren't even thinking about the, the grayscale of it all. <laughs> that would really be like, okay, well, I thought we had too many body parts chopped off, but now... But no, I do want to bring up, so Nina um, brings up a great point there and something I think everyone should always be aware of not to get lost in the weeds too much and to really take that step back and, and look at things, you know, from a meta perspective, from a thematic perspective, from a what does this really mean perspective rather, you know, it, it can just get really easy to to lose tr lose sight of that. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, laughing Storm again, uh, Laughing Stormborn again from YouTube says, I find it hard to believe the House of Black and White doesn't know about Arya's true power, meaning her skin changing abilities. Their whole way of life is built on illusion and breaking illusions. I doubt an inexperienced little girl will be able to pull a fast one on them. She will believe she has fooled them, but it will be all the manipulations of the House of Black and White. Fair point. Very much a fair point. It's entirely possible they do know that she's a skin changer and they're not letting her know that they know. 
um, and they're planning something. They have something in mind for that. They have a reason for that. They want this power for themselves to make use of it. It's entirely possible. Yeah, I think this is a fair point. Like, it is a little much maybe to think that Arya is going to outwit the House of Black and White. That is a tall order. That's well, a fair point. And the other, the thing that I was going to wrap, and it's it's a great point that I say you just brought up because it leads directly into what I was going to say here, which is that it's really hard. It's something that's really important is uh, avoiding reader presentism, which mm-hmm. is, you know, because we as the reader know something, assuming that the characters in universe find it as obvious as we do. Right. You know, just because something has been revealed through one or more POVs does not mean that the characters who are interacting with one or more of those POVs know that information. Maybe, but not necessarily. So in the case of Arya, Arya herself isn't even entirely aware of her skin changing ability. Yeah. Like she knows that she skin changes the cat, obviously, but she's never called herself a skin changer. Right. She doesn't know what that is. She does well, I mean, she knows what it is in a story. It's like sense, a compartmentalized thing. We've been we brought that up a few no times. No one's yeah. there to teach her, hey Arya, you are a skin changer, and this is how that works. She's just experiencing it kind of doing it by by action and not and not by lesson. So the idea that then the House of Black and White, who really only knows that she's Arya Stark, they don't even know anything else about <laughs> her, would somehow assume, oh, obviously she's a skin changer. There's yeah. no oh, other possible explanation. Yeah. I think that's going a little far. And again, you know, you look at the scene, the kindly man, when it, when Arya says like, hey, I know you're the one that's been beating me, the kindly man doesn't like nod and be like, mm-hmm, I knew you'd figure it out, like a <laughs> winking thing. He seems genuinely shocked that she figured it out yeah that's true makes sense because she's not using any of the you know probably the the assumption is that they'd use like i don't know you know their other senses and hear you know hear his heartbeat or or smell what he smelled like or listen for you know something else about him or, or feel him and feel his skin or something so yeah she doesn't do any of that so there is no real explanation they're saying how the heck did you do this how did you manage yeah. to to figure this out and as a practical matter, seems like kind of a, a dumb challenge that the faceless men would give her <laughs> if they already know that she's a skin changer. Like, you have to figure it out while blind. Mm. And we know that you can see through other animals and we're not banning you from seeing through the animals. But this is a test. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, we could parse that then. Let's say it this way. Maybe maybe he's got a point that outwitting the house of black and white is 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 maybe a bit much but that doesn't mean they know about her power her her skin changing that's there's two different points I, I here yeah the thing is Arya has not outwitted the house of not black yet, and white right yeah like she's maybe she's going fully to fully owned up to like when they say yeah look i murdered someone and i don't think he's going to get away with the murder of rap no, she either won't, yeah. so <laughs> we'll have to see so this it's a good point a good point to raise just to think maybe uh they're not as unaware of some things as 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 they as it seems, but maybe they are also more aware. We'll have to see. It's a good point to bring up for sure. Thank you for that question. Laughing Stormborn again. Pretty good name, too. Fodder for foreshadowing, not a question, but a great comment. A symbol of for storks is mercy. And in the mercy chapter, we have Lady Stork. I did not know stork symbolized mercy, but I think I vaguely remember that from doing research from uh, our Witcher podcast. Yes. That's a nice storks catch. Have a lot of weird associations. There, there was just that idea that storks were like would take care of their parent storks and would like care for them in old age. What? Which I don't know how that got started. 
but but that was a very persistent idea for a very very long and your, time. Your storks so. are just dropping their babies off at people's houses. <laughs> well, that's bird law. They're bound they by bird other law. Other pe- people's babies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, other people's babies. Like, they care for other storks. They don't care for humans. <laughs> Screw humans. I don't know. If you can trust storks with other people's babies, you, it implies a certain level of trust, but hey. <laughs> so yeah, good call fodder for foreshadowing. Hey, we got a comment from our friend Jim, a.k.a. something like a lawyer, a.k.a. our frequent guest, most recently, Barrison too. <laughs> and he, he adds on to our uh, discussion of psychedelic drugs in religious practices. He says, a lot of religions incorporate psychedelics into their practices. While the psychedelic vision quest is an idea that is seen in stoner comedy, there are plenty of shamanic cultures across the world who use psychedelics from the people of the, from the peyote of Native American and Native Mexican tribes to the fly agaric of Siberia to the ayahuasca used in the Amazonian basin. Uh, and then another comment added on to this from We Ginger Doug says, I studied and examined drug-induced religious experience as part of my final year dissertation at university, and it genuinely is a fascinating subject. Also, many new religious movements use it as part of deliberate conversion methods and techniques. So yeah, as we said at the time, this is a time-honored tradition. You're, you're on just using the most extreme, brutal form of it. Uh, all of these examples were people taking it on, you know, willingly. <laughs> so, uh, although there is some deliberate conversion methods, some of it's maybe like, maybe a little bit of uh, trickery involved, but Southern Euron is, is a little more straightforward. A little more straightforward. That's uh, some excellent additional... Putting Euron and straightforward in the same sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why do you have an eye patch over your good eye, man? I mean, is it really just for the eye, the darkness thing? Probably not. He's just a weirdo. Last comment, uh, question from Rod Dammit. Uh, he says, History of Westeros, could we hear your theory on how things will play out with Brienne and Jamie and Stoneheart? Probably my favorite cliffhanger. Sure, um, I'll go first, and then, Nina, you, you can uh, close us out here. I think it's going to come down to a trial by combat. I think Brienne will, def- will offer to defend Jamie. Jamie will say, demand trial by combat. They'll say, okay. And Brienne will be his champion, and she'll win. I don't think Brienne dies in this scenario. So, but I don't know what happens after that. Does that mean she lets them go? Does that, was that the deal? Like if you win, you get to leave? Uh, I don't know. And I think maybe who their champion will be, my best guess is Lem, sort of like vaguely foreshadowed by Sandor. Being like, what about you, Lemon, you know, or I'll fight you or whatever. Uh, I forget what he calls him. Some, you know, some Sandor insult. That's my short version. Of course, we could go farther than that, but let's get uh, what your take on it. Yeah, and I'm going to, I'm gonna. I'm a little afraid to say this because anytime you bring up Brienne and Jamie, there's gonna be someone waiting. <laughs> so I'm sorry, anyone in advance. But um, uh, I, I also agree there will be a trial by combat. But in the tradition of uh, everything horrible going down with the with Lady Stoneheart's Brotherhood without banners, if Jamie insists on trial by combat, then they may say, "All right, well, Brienne, you were State Catelyn's sworn sword in life." So now you are you are going. I'm going to command you to be my sworn sword. Now you fight, Jamie. Oh my! So that's a little bit of a tie-in, I guess, to kind of the, the John Corn half-hand fight in, in terms of a, a man Ooh, with yeah. partial limb <laughs> fighting fighting someone else, um, and maybe also an intentional loss fight in which you know Brienne decides to sacrifice herself wow. so that so that Jamie can can get away. Um, and then I think Jamie, Jamie does win. Uh, and then I think he goes to King's Landing and murders Cersei. But 
you know, that's a separate point. Yeah. Well, Crystal James uh, from the chat has a very good counterpoint. Uh, she's maybe brings the possibility that would Lady Stoneheart agree to a trial by combat after how badly that went with Tyrion at the Aerie? Hmm. Um, good point. I think she. I think she would in the sense that if, you know, if Jamie brings it up and she's seen Brienne, you know, if she thinks, oh, Brienne's defending Jamie now, then the kind of vengeful punishment is, okay, okay you fight Jamie. Yeah. So one of you has to die, sort of thing. Yeah, that's still, yeah, she might, yeah, that's a good point. And the Airy, she was invested in the result. This one, she wins either way. Or she gets revenge either way. So you're right. Like, it's hard for her to, it's harder for her to imagine how this goes badly for her, how this backfires. So unlike, she saw what was coming at the bell. She's like, this Braun guy, I don't know. He looks kind of dangerous. <laughs> like, are we really, this seems like we're risking losing here for no point. Why don't just keep him? Why, why give him trial by combat? Yeah, so good point. Uh, good answers. And that is our last question. We are done for the day. That was a really fun delving. You guys asked a lot of great questions. A lot of, uh, we had some saved up from uh, past weeks and there were a lot of good ones asked live. I had a lot of fun going over the Stark Convergence. There's just so much to think about. Laying it out like the way you did is really helpful to a lot of people. I think everybody knows a lot of these basics, of course, but having it like systematically run through with all the pros and cons of how they represent and who's backing them and all that, I think it's probably very helpful to a lot of people to sorting it out in their mind. Asha Fragment, not a whole lot to go on with that, but we definitely uh, sussed a few new things out in the Riverlands prologue. That discussion, that was really good. I, I think that may have been the highlight today for me anyway, uh, because that is just so many fun possibilities. And um, I'm just excited for all the different versions. Like every version we came up with is awesome. And I know there's versions that we couldn't have possibly came up with, and those are going to be awesome too. So <laughs> it's all great. So thank you very much for coming on, Nina. This was fantastic. What uh, Do you have any... Anything you're planning on writing about soon, or what is what's been of interest to you lately? Um, no, it's kind of a chaotic good situation mm-hmm. where it's just anything and anything happens at any given time. Uh, no, I was, you know, I, geez, I don't know, I have everything and anything. So, <laughs> uh, no, it's it, it's all good. It, you, you throw something my way, and I'll, and I'll probably think about it. <laughs> right on. Yeah, you can ask her just about anything uh, on her blog, and she. You know, if it's a if it's a good question, how, how many L's does it have? <laughs> <laughs> one L, good Queen Alley with one, one L. L, not three. One. Five is right out. <laughs> one L, that's right. <laughs> it's not good Queen Ally. <laughs> Although I, I am an ally to Alisan, but no, that is true, no, and one. you are an ally to us. That's right, and a friend. So this is this all works out very well. <laughs> so thanks everyone for coming thanks for everyone who stopped by live to hang out in the chat seems like there were some really good discussions going on some of that made it live for our discussion which is great we always love it when that happens you guys give us excellent things to think about and discuss and sometimes we have sometimes the questions are so good we have to think about them after the fact too and, and consider them offline because it's just that it's just that thought provoking sometimes Next week, we have The Lost Valyrian Steel with Tommy Pappas, a.k.a. TKOK Podcast Network, a.k.a. New Dad. Then, the return of Sean of House Beard. And we begin dunking it for History of Westbrook. That's going to be awesome. And it will take as long as it takes. We don't have a set schedule for Dunkin' Egg. We're just going to go through Dunkin' Egg until we're done. Um, so I'm one sentence every yeah one sentence. I imagine it'll take two to three months, uh, something like that. 
And of course, we'll continue to put out other episodes from time to time in between that. But that is the uh, what we can tell you is definitely coming in the short term. Uh, we mentioned a few of our other episodes during this one. We mentioned some talk about the five-year gap. We talked about the Battle of Ice. That's pretty much always coming up. Um, and a few other various things like... Um, what else we talked about? We talked about the old gods? Yeah. Uh, we, again, we're, are, we are again asking for your support for our audio project. <laughs> you were doing the Bernie Sanders movie. I was doing the once Bernie Sanders. I am once again asking you to support not our Patreon, our voice project, our vo- wins and winner vocal. Well, I'm also asking you to support our Patreon. But that's not what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, a little reveal here, which is that, oh my God. which is that we're working on Tyrion too right now, and the lovely Nina is Penny. Yeah. How nice, huh? It's still in the works. So it'll be a while before you guys all get to hear it. But exciting! It is exciting. We've got a lot like, of good people. By for that the way. One. I, I will tell anybody, this will be my pitch to everybody to, to do it, because if I, the worst actor in the entire universe, <laughs> can do it, then literally anyone can do it. <laughs> so we've got plenty more chapters left for that project. Get involved. A lot of you have, and we really appreciate that, but there are a lot of voices to cast. And, well, who knows what we'll do afterward. We've discussed, it's a long way out, but we've discussed maybe doing... Other chapters after the Winds of Winter one, just for the heck of it. Like picking a chapter from one of the many 350 plus chapters from the previous books and just doing that one. Why not? It's fun. So this could be a very long-term thing. Um, So get involved. Why not now? And one of the best places to discuss it is on our Discord or Facebook group. Those, of course, are also venues for discussing lots of other things as well, both around A Song of Ice and Fire as well as other topics. Uh, so we will see you all next time. Thanks to our excellent guest, Nina. And you'll be hearing her thoughts again in future episodes. And we'll certainly have her back on live as well again. Thanks to Ashea. A little bit of a talking sort. <laughs> <laughs> that works for me because I am too. Uh, Ashea over there doing such great work. We got our mods over on Facebook keeping things in order, keeping the discussions tight and neat and uh, intelligent and um, healthy. Same goes over on Flick and Slack and Discord. We got Claridox.de with an amazing video intro. He even sent us a question today. Thank you, Michael, for your excellent work in the art realm and elsewhere in this community. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Redis music. Thanks to Joey Koval and Jesse... Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the History of Westeros <laughs> intro-outro music. Thanks to Benjineer for the sound quality assistance, the editing, the back-end engineering projects that go on. He's also a big part of the uh, Winds of Winter audio project. Thank you to our patrons for keeping the lights on, for making this all financially feasible as a uh, as our job, right? You guys, you guys are basically our boss. And check out our friends over at Here Be Dragons. We are ending right at the right time. They're starting in just a few minutes. They are talking Clone Wars Season 5. Okay, making their way through that excellent show. Shay and I are only on late Season 2, early Season 3 of that. We're, we're making our way pretty slowly on that one. But I, I just I just read the, the most recent two Thrawn novels, so I'm definitely uh, coming back around on some Star and Wars. And we films. also read Light of the Jedi, which that was, was the even first better, yeah. in the High Republic uh, era of books. Yeah, yeah, so we we have been engaging with Star Wars. Yeah, now. I do like Star Wars. I have here. also engaged in Star Wars. I have my Batu mug, so I, I can also. <laughs> yeah, yes. I cannot wait. I'm <laughs> constantly jealous of you, Nina. Everybody, Nina gets oh to God. go to all the 
theme park. She's been to Galaxy's Someday. Edge you so many go. times. Yeah. <laughs> you and I will go, Isaiah. We will go and it will be amazing. Yeah, Galaxy's Edge. That's cool. Okay, y'all. Thanks, everyone, for coming. We'll see you next week for more Valar Reads. <laughs>